Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hey, ever wonder if the nuclear weapons used against Japan were justified? Well, a caller heard me mention that I had my doubts, and we went deep, deep, deep into the history of how all this came about. I think if you've only heard the mainstream view, you are going to be shocked and enlightened by the conversation. The second caller, um, I guess it started out as a debate. It ended up something quite different, but... um. It's well worth it. This uh, fellow called in and wanted to lecture me because he thought I was not displaying the virtues of patience and respect and tolerance towards those who <sighs> who disagreed with me. You'll see how <laughs> you'll see how it went. The third caller wanted to know about universal basic income and uh, what I thought about it, whether I thought it was justified, and then, um, well, it, it turns out he was very pro-communist, and we had quite a um, visceral bone marrow kind of conversation about those issues until we didn't. And (laughs) you'll see what happens there. And the uh, fourth caller was a woman who just wanted to know what was going on in in Puerto Rico and uh, what was going on with this dissolution of, of families and the dependence on the welfare state. And she grew up there and just wanted to know what could be done to try and turn things around. And the fifth caller wanted to know, how do you let go of things that are troubling you? How do you surmount your own capacity for repetitive thoughts about things you can't really change? Great, great set of calls. Great listeners. I really appreciate everyone who calls in, and I appreciate you so much, my friends, my listeners, my buddies, my brothers in arms and sisters in arms. Please, please drop by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help help out the show, to help us do what we need to do in the world, what the world needs us to do in the world. freedomainradio.com slash donate. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And please use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon should you have any shopping to do. All right. Up first, we have Colin. Colin wrote into the show and said, In one of your YouTube videos, I believe you called the use of nuclear arms by the United States in World War II unjustified. Although I may be mistaken, either way... Do you believe that this action was morally correct and or the best choice available to the United States government? And is there a difference between these two things? That's from Colin. Hey, Colin. How are you doing tonight? Uh, hi. Good. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Cool. So um, what did you do, just out of curiosity, when you heard about my statement regarding nuclear weapons at the end of Second World War? Did you... Did you look anything up? What did you research? Where did it lead you? Uh, well, what I I heard that initially, and I had remembered a while ago, I had done a school project on it. One of our assignments in the history class was to debate. And in that, I had a lot of the research. And so I already, I had familiarized myself a lot with the topic before, but I, I looked up back into uh, like the sort of both what the effects of the bombing were. I looked into what the proposed alternatives were, what the possibilities of what it could happen if we didn't, uh, and that sort of thing. And then once I had done that, I wrote into the show to talk to you about it. Okay, so you've described to me the form. I guess I was more interested in the content of what you came up with. So in your research, why did Japan attack America at Pearl Harbor? At Pearl Harbor? That was a preeminent preeminent strike i believe preemptive but yeah preemptive, go ahead. yeah yeah yes but why 
well, their goal was they believed that U.S. intervention was inevitable. So they wanted to take out the United States Navy before they would before we could really rear the full power against them. No, I understand that they attacked Pearl Harbor and sunk a bunch of ships because they wanted to disable the U.S. Navy. The question is, why oh, did okay. they do that? I get, I get what you mean now. Why, well, why did they attack the Navy? Because they wanted yeah, to harm the Navy. They were, I they think were let's take that as a given. And yeah, why right, did right. they want to do it? Uh, well, for my my answer, I would give you is because they were an expansionist imperialist power. Would you agree? Well, sure, but. I mean, so many countries are expansionist, uh, imperialistic powers. Why at that time, on that day in 1942, did the Japanese, I'm not saying, was it justified? I'm saying, or I'm asking, why did they do it? What was their rationale in doing so? Yeah. Uh, like at that time. Oh, as, a, as opposed to earlier or later? Well, yes. And, and why at all? Well, I suppose that you could say it's because the... You could say it's because the Japanese believed that their goals and the goals of the United States were so incompatible. That oh, my God, been... man. Of course they had disagreements. But why? I... What specifically happened? You've done a project on this. You've done research. Why were the Japanese desperate to attack America oh, and the oh, Navy? I, oh, was, are, you, are you referencing the oil embargo? Yes. There we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that had slipped my mind. Sorry. So go ahead. Oh, go just with the the sort of laying out of what I was thinking. Okay, I guess I'll do it. Um, so Roosevelt had had banned all exports of scrap iron, steel, and oil to Japan. Yes, and, and because he didn't like the Japanese invasion of China, so Japan had lost more than ninety percent of its oil supply. Japan, of course, has no native production of of oil. So this, you know, economic isolation that was imposed by the U.S. embargo had crippled Japan's military and its economy as a whole. And Japan looked across, across at America and said, OK, well, these guys are starving us out. We can't survive as a, a military power or even as an economic power if this continues. And they looked at America and they said, well, America's been sitting out the war for a couple of years now. Uh, they've had a, a crippling depression that has gone on and on. And so if they're not willing to go to fight to save the British or, or, or the French, uh, then, you know, they're probably not going to bother doing too much from uh, from all of this. And so they figured that if they went and destroyed the um, Navy uh, in America, then the embargo, of course, would be lifted. Or, and then the, the American response would most likely be fairly tepid, right? I mean, they, they believed that it was not going to be much because they had watched America not get involved in the European war yeah, so hitler believed the same thing when he invaded poland he believed there would only be a reprimand from the uk right 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 so um an embargo is an is an act of war right i mean we we, we understand that uh and yes, so yes. um it was a response to american uh, encirclement of the Japanese mainland. Now, this is not to put Jap Japan out of the picture as far as moral responsibility. I just want to bash on America. Japan had invaded China, uh, and the Japanese soldiers were like, holy crap, unbelievably brutal. Uh, the, I mean, just look at how the Japanese soldiers treated, say, Australian prisoners of war. Uh, look at, though, you can read a book called The Rape of Nanking uh, about uh, how the, um, the Japanese soldiers treated those they gained control over. And um, 
So this was uh, your, your typical back and forth, semi-superpower expansionistic crap. But um, w- without a doubt, the, the embargo, I mean, either Japan was going to knuckle down to uh, American preferences and, and be crippled uh, economically and militarily, uh, or they had to strike at America. But uh, certainly America had, had forced their hand in this way. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Now, what did you learn or, or read about the atomic bomb and, and the dropping of it? Oh, the use of and it. And how that decision was made. Uh, well, I know that it was it was made primarily. Well, it, it was given the sign off by Harry Truman, who uh, he it's kind of it's popular knowledge here. I don't know how much you, if it's as popular knowledge in Canada, but he only knew about it essentially the day that he was asked whether or not he should drop it. I know it had been in development for quite some while. It had been supposed to be the only thing that could break the Bushido spirit of Japan. And obviously the human impact was immense of the bombing. Right. Okay. Uh, And um, do you know what the military thought of this particular uh, bombing? Some of the top-ranking brass? Uh. Like what? What their opinions were on the use of the weapon? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I know that MacArthur was kind of gung ho about it. I know that he was in support of the idea because when they planned land invasions, they the casualties they counted out were so vast that they supposed that it would have been a much better alternative to use the bomb. Well, I. Uh... I would like to see a source for that because that's not the yeah. information. That's that not what I you have. have? No. So I'll sort of run through it very briefly. So okay. Secretary of War Henry Stimson. Yes. That he, so he informed Dwight Eisenhower, who's general, of course, in charge of the army, said the bomb was going to be dropped in Japan. Mm-hmm. So Eisenhower wrote an autobiography called Mandate for Change. And yep. uh, Eisenhower related this, uh, related this exchange. He said, I voiced to him my grave misgivings, first on the basis of my belief that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary. And secondly, because I thought that our country should avoid shocking world opinion by the use of a weapon whose employment was, I thought, no longer mandatory as a measure to save American lives. It was my belief that Japan was, at that very moment, seeking some way to surrender with a minimum loss of face. Mm-hmm. So this is Dwight this is Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, this is the guy, right, as far as Second World War military. So um, this is from The Pathology of Power by Norman Cousins. Uh, he said, uh, this is, when I asked General MacArthur about the decision to drop the bomb, I was surprised to learn he had not even been consulted. Right? General, General MacArthur I not must even have, consulted. Now that I think about that, I was conflating his opinions in Japan with his in Korea. Okay. He said, what I asked would his advice have been? He replied that he saw no military justification for the dropping of the bomb. The war might have ended weeks earlier, he said, if the United States had agreed, as it later did anyway, to the retention of the institution of the emperor. Now, so what he's referring to here is that the Japanese, uh, obviously, uh, like most people, but maybe even a little bit more than most, are interested in sort of saving face and all that kind of stuff, right? And looking all right. So the Japanese said, before the bombs were dropped, before either of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were dropped, the Japanese had informed the American government that they were willing to surrender, unconditionally with one exception, which was they wished to retain the emperor. They wished to retain the emperor on his throne. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the American government said, no, you can't have the emperor, unconditional surrender, top to bottom, we can dictate everything. Now, h- how did that work out with the Germans after World War I, with the Versailles Treaty and we'll impose whatever we'll want? Well, it created a huge number of problems, some of which in- undoubtedly led to the Second World War. Could I interject for a second? Sure. Uh, well, one of, the, one of the large problems that a lot of historians associate with the Weimar German uh, situation was the lack of the democratic tradition in Germany, right? Have you well, have you Germany heard that theory? Was, am I aware Germany was a democracy under the Weimar Republic? No, what I'm saying is the reason why Germans re- eventually rejected democracy and moved to national socialism was because of their their limited, truly democratic history. They... Oh, no, no, I'm not going down. Hang on, I'm sorry. That that have to be a whole separate conversation. I don't want to go down that road in particular, right. like the rise of Nazism and all that. So hold, let's but, just do one historical myth at a yeah. time. The, so um, the, the reason why I bring that up, though, is because no, no, I think... No, yeah. no, 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 <laughs> no. Unless it's completely directly relevant and we don't even have an answer for it. Let's just continue with what we're talking about and let, not go over to Germany. I, I think so it is relevant, the, though. Okay, go ahead. The The reason why I believe it's relevant is because I think the United States government had reason to fear that if they left the emperor in power, even as a, even as a figurehead, it would, it would make the Japanese more rejective of a democratic tradition. Obviously, oh that's God, not but true. The, the, oh, my God. No, 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 no. And I'll tell you why. I'm sorry. That's just wildly incorrect. Okay. So, so the... the um, the Japanese said, we'll surrender everything you can tell us, everything about everything, but we wish to retain the emperor. And the, the, the uh, Americans said no. And then they bombed the shit out of generally innocent civilians in Hiroshima, uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. Now, they'd already firebombed the shit out of Tokyo, mm-hmm. which had created a firestorm that kills staggering numbers of people. If I remember rightly, the immediate death count of the firestorm bombing, I think with B-52s of Tokyo, was higher than that of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Now, in the long term, of course, radiation killed more people, I think, but staggeringly horrifying people. Now, it was, I mean, there's an emperor too. It wasn't like Japan was this wild, big-ass democracy. Uh, at least Hitler was voted into power so the Germans could be conceived of having some responsibility for what happened. So, But so what happened was they bombed the shit out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then the Japanese were allowed to keep their emperor anyway. There's still an emperor in Japan. So these fears that, well, you know, if we let them keep their emperor, they, they let them keep the emperor anyway. So the Japanese said, we want to surrender. We just need to keep our emperor. They said, no, you can't keep your emperor unconditional. They bombed the shit out of these two cities, radiation poisoning, staggering, unforgettable fire, all this kind of stuff. And then they let them keep the emperor anyway. So it's completely useless. Well, yeah, but my original point was that I think that they had reason to believe that yeah, yeah, I think they had reason to believe is not an argument. Okay, Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz. He's the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Commander-in-chief of the U.S. Pacific. So he would be the guy who would be delivering the soldiers for the supposed invasion of the Japanese mainland, right? Yes. He said the Japanese had, in fact, already sued for peace. The atomic bomb played no decisive part from a purely military point of view in the defeat of Japan. The use of atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material assistance in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender. Chief of Staff to President Truman in the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey said, 
This is Admiral William D. Leahy, Chief of Staff. Certainly prior to 31st December 1945, and in all probability prior to 1st November 1945, Japan would have surrendered even if atomic bombs had not been dropped. Major General Curtis LeMay said the war would have been over in two weeks without the Russians entering and without the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb had nothing to do with the end of the war at all. Now, one argument is that they dropped the bomb to scare the shit out of the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so Japan controlled this Manchurian region, and there was like this three-pronged Soviet army attack that was uh, launched against the Japanese-controlled Manchurian region, which had a million and a half men. I don't know where the hell all these Russian soldiers come from. And after two world wars, they got to be cranking them out like uh, toothpaste. But yeah, yeah, so Japan's army just lasted three more weeks. And uh, so that is sort of one argument as to why. But given that they surrendered all of Eastern Europe anyway, I'm not really sure what the point of all all that was. Uh, So yeah, it's it's geopolitics is the very best option or very best way. Or, you know, this sort of... um, Jupiter complex, as it was called, the Allied bombing, it just just bombs the shit out of people who, who you're at war with because it sort of feels uh, better. And um, you know, is 2003 yeah, right? That. Hundreds of thousands of Iraqis uh, burned up and and killed, um, short term and long term. Um, you know, phony threat of WMDs. Um, 2012, thousands of Libyans and stability of a whole region sacrificed to U.S. politics and all that kind of stuff. So um, this uh, idea that it was necessary to drop these bombs is, um, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to go with the deep experts at the time and with the historical facts that are clearly uh, in the record. But of course, it's very tough. It's very tough for America and, and for American students to, to look at this kind of decision and say, well, America decided to irradiate people for no particular point when the war was already over fundamentally, when Japan had already sued for surrender, and when the terms that the Japanese wanted for surrender ended up uh, being accepted by the U.S. anyway, um, then the, the bombing was uh, unnecessary. So um, it's, it's, hard for, it's hard for Americans to look at that decision uh, and feel a lot of pride uh, in, in that kind of decision. I think that's one of the reasons why. I mean, I heard this when I was a kid, too. You know, well, the invasion of, of the Japanese mainland would have cost so many American lives and so on. And no one ever told me until I looked it up myself years later. No one ever told me that the, um, uh, that the Japanese had already sued for peace in terms that the U.S. had eventually accepted anyway. So, um, yeah, Tokyo Fire Department... Uh, this is the one raid, one raid, 97,000 killed and 125,000 wounded. Uh, astonishing. Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department established a figure of 83,793 dead, 40,918 wounded, and close to 300,000 buildings and homes destroyed. Uh, that's just uh, one raid uh, over Tokyo. So the idea that, well, you know, if we kill a lot of Japanese, they'll surrender in one night, in one night. Almost 100,000 killed, 125,000 wounded with no nukes, no nukes. So the idea that you needed to drop a bomb, I mean, they just did this in one night anyway. So it's not not quite as bad in the short run, radiation poisoning in the long run. It wasn't like you needed to use these nuclear weapons because they already had basically free reign over Japanese airspace, the, the counter 
uh, the AA guns and the fighters were almost non-existent at this point. So uh, they had free reign over Japanese airspace. They could bomb the shit out of anyone they wanted. They could kill 100,000 people, wound 125,000 more, and destroy nearly 300,000 buildings and homes in one night without the use of nuclear bombs. So there was no question the Japanese knew that the game was over uh, before. And um, there's another historian uh, who puts the deaths at over 100,000. His name is Richard Rhodes. Japanese deaths in one night, over 100,000, injuries at a million, and homeless residents at one million. So, uh, no, there was no need. Uh, no need for the nuclear weapons whatsoever, um, unless you feel that uh, somehow uh, Japanese um, civilians should be killed because it scares the Russians when the Russians pretty much took all of Eastern Europe anyway. It seems bizarre that the Truman administration would take that measure and then agree to something with essentially no change. Like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to mentally like picture what his thought process was doing that. Why? Yeah. Why, why does it matter? Uh, it's just interesting. I'm not sure why. Well, it's interesting to consider what, his thought process was if he like obviously he was willing to agree with a little bit of pressure put on to the original peace terms right because those are the ones he accepted and but the idea that he would do this and to to essentially no avail that's that's jesus i mean really did you not notice that that george w bush <laughs> Invaded Iraq and, and has caused the death of probably close to a million people with no justification whatsoever. And haven't you noticed that before that, Madeleine Albright celebrated this? They had an embargo against Iraq that has killed, that killed, that murdered, caused the death directly of half a million children in a population of 30 million. Well, it's not new to me. It's just I mean, that would be like that would be like a that would be like releasing a virus in America that killed five million children. Yeah. I mean, the idea that this is something new. In no, geopolitics, so this is new in government. I mean, who knows what the fuck these people think and who cares? <laughs> Let's just look at the morality of, of the events and, and the outcomes. Yeah. You, we, we, and that's, a, that's a hole with nobody. You can't possibly ever know what went through his mind. Was he yeah. a sadist? Did he believe it was necessary? Who cares? It was not necessary. He didn't even consult with some of his major military leaders. He's a, like, he was president, right? Yeah. He's got no goddamn right to, to make massive decisions involving the deaths of largely innocent Japanese, largely women and children, because the men had all been splashed into the side of American warships through kamikaze deaths. And so, yeah, you could say, well, you know, these the women and children, the women raised the guys who ended up, but it was a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. We don't hold the victims of a dictatorship responsible for the actions of the dictator. Yeah, and no. the idea that uh, this this was necessary is false. It means that hundreds of thousands of innocent people were murdered through nuclear weapons, through irradiation, after a war that the U.S. provoked by creating a civilization-strangling embargo around Japan. And again, Japan, bunch of assholes too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not like, you know, Japanese government was only trying to, no, they were in there uh, raping the hell out of Chinese women uh, many times, many ways. And, and their behavior in when they captured prisoners of war, dear Lord, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, you just want to read up some of the descriptions of how they tested chemical and noxious and biological warfare on concentric rings of Western prisoners. Well, they were incredibly brutal. Unit 731, was it called? Do you know? 
It was some no, I sums I don't in the numbers. I, I, I've read some of this stuff. I just, I don't go that deep into it because I feel helpless in the face of evil that's distant in the past. I, I don't feel helpless in the face of evil that is to come because we can turn the wheel against that stuff. The evils in the distant past that to some degree have been reformed. Um, and uh, the evils in the distant past, I, I can only stomach so much of that stuff. Uh, it's like, you know, rewinding and watching the death of a loved one you can't do anything about. There's something becomes masochistic after a while. And um, I'd rather work to prevent future accidents than dwell on the horrors of the past. Yeah. And all that's... I'm trying to find the words to describe the... Uh, like the... Cons it just, it's such a waste that you would go through all of that to to nothing. That's like, because if there actually was no substantive difference between the peace treaties, as you say, then probably, yeah, there wasn't a real reason to use the nuclear weapons. Like, I, I'd have to agree with you on that one. Well, and it's hard to say, because I heard this argument, but they wanted to scare the Russians. Mm -hmm. Like, and, but, and uh, during the entire negotiations with mm -hmm. Russia that were occurring at Yalta, I mean, FDR loved Uncle Joe Stalin. He was handed over things left, right, and center. Yeah. They, they handed over Poland. Now he was being advised by uh, a Soviet spy, as it turned out, because, you know, McCarthy was right, as I talked about in The Truth About McCarthyism recently. But the idea, well, you know, the Russians were enemy. We had to show them who was boss. It's like, but they were negotiating with them like they were haggling over uh, a cracked China set at a garage sale uh, at Yalta not, not too far uh, previous. And so the idea that they were, we don't want to scare the Russians and scare the Russians back is like, they just handed over millions of people into Soviet domination because um, FDR thought that, that Joseph Stalin was just this wonderful, wonderful guy. And um, so I, I don't believe that uh, uh, for a moment. Uh, I, you know, if I had to hazard a guess, uh, I would put it down to mass murdering sadism and, and little more and, and little less. Yeah, the one, the only real, the, well, there, there was one strategic difference between I think the first uh, cry for peace and the second, which was it was that J Russia had actually invaded the Japanese islands at the at the time of the bombing. But it doesn't it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me that the United States would that we would bomb them except the first peace treaty out of like some sort of haste, because still we I feel that we would have had the well, well, here's here. Let me put this like this. Okay. Rather than rather than sort of thinking aloud to posit this, like to posit to play a devil's advocate and hear your opinion. So, like at the time of when the bomb dropped, the the Russians had invaded minor or not minor outlying northern islands of Japan. And perhaps it was the US government's idea that after the bombing, they wanted to rush to the negotiating table and say, "Listen, we will accept those original peace treaties because we really don't want a second Korea situation in Japan. What do you think of that? Again, I mean, these are speculations that, that can't lead anywhere. I'll tell you two, two basic facts, though, that are important mm -hmm. to, to remember. So we talked about the bombings in Tokyo, which were horrendous enough that, that one night. And again, we've got estimates of 100,000 killed. The two, the, the two bombings, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killed 129,000, right? Two, two together, right? Yes. Now, before, um, before the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the nuclear bombings, 
how many Japanese cities do you think had been utterly destroyed by conventional firebombing? I would suppose quite a lot. I, I don't know much about the Japanese number, but I know an inordinate amount of German cities were destroyed. Well, they had destroyed 67 Japanese cities mm. by this point. And the 129,000 people killed, that's a low, a low estimate, right, for the two bombings. Could be, could be, as, could be a, well north of 200,000. But they'd already destroyed 67 cities by this point. So the idea, I mean, Japan had, w- w- was basically on fire from, from end to end. Uh, the people had nothing to eat. Uh, the, the, the sanitation systems, the, the plumbing, the electricity, all had been destroyed in yeah. 67 cities. 67 cities. Mm-hmm. And they weren't going for the little cities. They were going for the big ones. So that's number one. So Japan knew that the Japanese government knew that, that, that the gig was up. There was no way. Yeah. Now, so they already offered to surrender. We just, they said, we just want to keep the... Um, they, we just want to keep the emperor. Now, one of the reasons, I don't know why, but I would guess one of the reasons why they wanted to keep the emperor was partly to save face, but also partly because they may have been concerned that the emperor would simply have ordered all the Japanese to fight to the death. And since the emperor yep. was given to them by God, then uh, they would have had to do that. And so the, 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 having, the, having the emperor remain on the throne may have been the price so that the emperor wouldn't order everyone to fight to the death because that's what they had to do in Germany, right? In Germany... Yes. Hitler ordered everyone to fight to the death, and you had like 10-year-old kids with BB guns going out there and getting their heads blown off and so on, right? So it was horrible. So this is number one. Now, number two, the time span between these two bombings was three days. Three days. Now, think about this. You're the Japanese government. It's the end of a brutal war. I don't know when the last time Japan was invaded, but I don't think it was very often. So this is a completely new thing. This is a, like it's a whole new thing. I mean, Russia, every time they wake up, they were getting invaded, which is why they got a little pissed off at Europe as a whole and probably have some ambivalent feelings about European problems at the moment. But anyway. Like the concept we so, have of a typhoon is the Japanese believe they're protected by God because no one's ever mounted a successful land invasion until just recently. Which, well, like, of the nuclear bombing, of course. Right. Even able to stave off migrants. Anyway, so so the Japanese government, the whole country is in a way they've received, obviously, massive physical damage, uh, countless deaths. uh, The the, the medical system is completely overwhelmed. They can't feed their people. It's, It's a hellscape. And this is a country that has not been invaded successfully in living or dead memory. And... 67 cities are destroyed. 67 cities destroyed. Think of the top 67 U.S. cities sorted by population destroyed. And it's a hell of a lot bigger uh, uh, America than Japan. Now then imagine this. They drop a bomb. You don't know what the hell it is. England knew. England actually, the British government approved it. And it's what outlined in the Quebec Agreement. But you don't know there's just some weird bomb. And you, you don't know. How do you, how do you not know? Because everyone's dead yeah. or dying or, and there's no communications in or out. You know, reading, so you uh, don't even know what the hell happened to Hiroshima. Yeah, there you was, don't know what the hell happened. Hey, let me finish. You don't know okay, what the sorry. hell happened to Hiroshima. 
And then you don't you have a couple of days which you're supposed to figure out what happened, go and assess the damage, try and figure out what kind of weapon has been dropped, and then you're supposed to change everything and, and sue for some sort of new piece. You can't do that in two days. You just can't. You can't even figure out what the hell happened in two days. You fly over the city, you look down and you see a giant crater with nuclear shadows all up. You don't know what the hell has happened. Just a, one of the most, I mean, the most unholy weapons blast in the history of humanity has happened. You don't know what the hell's happened. How the hell are you supposed to assess the damage, figure out your battle plan, or your change in battle plan, or your change in negotiations, and, and communicate it to the Americans, and you don't know. Mm-hmm. Before you've had a chance to assess the damage in Hiroshima, boom! Nagasaki melts into the sky. So if this was a weapon designed to compel the Japanese to do something, I don't think the Japanese had time because this was a weapon utterly new in the history of humanity to assess the damage and figure out what the hell they were going to do. Well, that makes sense. So it was um, a quarter million unnecessary murders, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and um, radiation sickness, um, mutations, birth defects that lasted for decades. Yes. Uh, still people alive dealing with radiation sickness of these bombs. And um, it turned the page in human history because these weapons had never been used before and they were used unnecessarily for the first time on non-military targets against a country that had already surrendered according to the terms that the surrender was finally accepted. And that's why I say, not so much necessary. That makes sense. Good. All right. Well, thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it. Oh, could I move on to the next caller? And uh, I uh, I do like me the history topic, so feel free to call back. Oh, but could I ask you, uh, I I really would like to read more about what the, you said there was the original peace treaty. Do you have, do you have a, like, was that in a book that you've, you read or did you like hear that somewhere? You're, you're I, a young man. Just use your oh. web foo and, and find it. It took me about 10 minutes. So okay. uh, you can just do a search for it. I'm sure you can find it. Uh, but right. um, thanks so much for your call. I'm going to move on. Have a nice day, Stefan. All right. Up next, we have Fritz. Fritz wrote in and said, why do you not take a more active stance in telling your listeners about the effectiveness of the virtues of patience and tolerance when conducting a debate with people? This is important because in today's society, we encounter people who argue based on feelings and propaganda, but why should we take what they say so personal? In my own experience, remaining calm when, for example, being called a racist and staying with my argument or maybe presenting it in a different way is more effective for actually changing people's minds than correcting their morality. I know that you have no responsibility over your audience's decisions, but I think it would be smart to show them a more effective way of getting this message of reason and truth across. That's from Fritz. Fritz, how you doing? Uh, hello, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Uh, so I... you, you think that you're a, a better persuader than I am when it comes to changing people's minds in the world? Uh, no. Uh, I uh, I don't, but the thing I don't understand is uh, you you your show is definitely based 
or you no, say- no, hang on, hang on. See, we, we have, sorry to interrupt you. We have to start with the facts. You wrote in to me, and I'm not criticizing. I just want to get where we're starting from. You wrote in and you said, in my own experience, remaining calm when, for example, being called a racist and staying with my argument or maybe presenting it in a different way is more effective for actually changing people's minds, right? Now, you mean more effective than what I'm doing, right? Which is fine. I mean, maybe you've got great advice for me and I'm happy to hear it. But you do believe that what you do is more effective than what I do, right? Because that's what you wrote. Uh, yes, in short, if if uh, you want to say Okay, so see, yeah. we already have a problem because you already just denied what you just affirmed. You already, I said to you, so you think you're better at convincing people than I am. And you said, no, 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 I don't believe that. I read you back and you say, okay, yes. Yeah, well, I, you definitely have more experience than me and you're uh, with talking to people and, uh, and uh, all of that. Um, but do you, do you think that I feel like trusting you at the moment when you've just contradicted yourself within 20 seconds of us starting a, comp- a conversation? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a messy question, I guess. Uh, no, no, it wasn't messy at all. You said you were better than me at convincing people. You denied it. And then when I confronted you with the evidence, you then backtracked and confirmed. Now, you didn't apologize for getting things wrong and you didn't, right? You're just trying to press on as if this didn't happen, which I don't want to do. I, am, I can apologize. Uh, and I would, if you would let me, uh, to give uh, like a like a background of uh, no, of no, 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 because th- 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 there's no background. Listen, you wrote to me and said, Steph, I Fritz am better at convincing people than you are. And I said, so you think you're better at convincing people than I am? You said no. I said, but that's what you wrote. You said yes. Well, maybe I was a little bit intimidated, uh, so I said no in the start, and maybe I should have stuck with uh, what I wrote and said yes. Uh, what do you mean intimidated? I mean, if, if you write to me and say that you're better than me at something, hey, maybe you are. I've got no problem with that. I mean, if you've got great things to teach me, I'm happy to hear. But I don't see how you'd be intimidated by me repeating back to you something that you wrote. You, you understand? Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying, boo, Fritz. I'm not jumping out of the sofa at you in the dark. I'm repeating back to you what you wrote to me to, to clarify and make sure I understand where you're coming from. And now you say that you're intimidated because I quoted you back to you. Do you find yourself intimidated by yourself a lot? Well, I was just, uh, I'm, I'm nervous to be on the show a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 21. I know I, I have, uh, I've listened to you for a long time and I know that you know your, your stuff, you know? So that's why I like felt a little bit intimidated. But you see, if you're, if you're too, but if you're too nervous to hold to your position or you're too nervous to understand what you wrote, how are we supposed to have a conversation? Right. If you're too nervous to like when, when Mike just read you, like, I can understand if you wrote this a while back ago, Mike just read your question, which you heard and understood. And if you're too nervous to understand what you just wrote to me and deny that you wrote it, then how are we supposed to have a conversation? Like I sympathize, but I know it can be intimidating or whatever. But if you're too nervous to have any honesty and integrity with me in the moment, I don't know how we're supposed to have a conversation. Because you could then just deny things and, and change your mind and change your position without even telling me or acknowledging it. And then when I confront it on you or I confront you on it, you could then say, well, I'm, I'm just nervous. And it's like, okay, I sympathize with that. But this is not a show for nervous people. Like if you're too nervous to have integrity in the conversation, then what you need to do is you need to go and figure out what makes you nervous and how you can have integrity despite being nervous, and then come back on the show so that we can have a conversation where you don't contradict yourself the very first time we start a conversation and then blame it on nervousness rather than 
whatever else it might be. So if you're too nervous to be honest and have integrity, I don't know how we can have a conversation. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess you're right. Uh, maybe my my answer should have been I don't know because I I'm not really sure what? if I no no no. <laughs> Your answer is not, I don't know. Your answer is, yes, Steph, I think I'm better at convincing people than you because that's what I just wrote to you. I wrote to you that it's more effective, that my way is more effective for actually changing people's minds rather than your way. So when I'm repeating back to you what you said, just to make sure that we're starting, I'm understanding we're starting in the same place, and you deny what you just wrote to me, the correct answer to you saying that you're better than me when I say, oh, you wrote that you're better than me, the correct answer is, yes, that's what I wrote. So that's what I mean, rather than, I don't know. Because I don't know if I'm talking to the Fritz who wrote the email or the Fritz who's here right now, who seems to be a little on the Fritz. No, <laughs> I, you're definitely talking to the Fritz who wrote the email. Okay, good. So you think you're better. And this is, sounds confrontational, but it's not. You think you're better at convincing people are changing their minds than I am. Yes, or at least I have some some criticisms, which... Uh, sure, but we don't have criticisms of people who are doing things better than, than us, right? Usually. So, okay, I just, so, so now we're back to you. You said no, then you said yes, then you said you don't know. So now we're back to yes. Yes. You yes, do exactly. think that you're better than me at convincing people. Yes. Okay, got it. What evidence do I have that this is true? All right. Um, so I mean, do you have a public, sorry, what I mean by that, do you have a public forum where you've shown this mastery? Because you said here privately and, you know, anyone can say anything. I, I can say, uh, Fritz, I'm, the, I'm the, the best singer that has ever been born. And at some point you might say, well, can I hear you sing? And I say, well, no, I only sing to myself privately. And you'd say, okay, well, I have no way to verify your claim. So, um, so right now, so far, you haven't been very good at changing my mind. Well, actually, I guess you have been, but just probably not in the direction that you want. So I guess I'm questioning, since you've claimed expertise in an area that I have been working in for, oh gosh, let's see now, 34 years, 34 years, and I have the biggest and most popular philosophy show in the world. We've got millions of listeners. People are dying to call in. They've got to wait forever to get a conversation with me. And I get emails every day, many emails about people whose minds I've changed. I know the influence that I have on people. So I have public evidence of my effectiveness in changing people's minds in some of the most controversial topics in the world. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not better than me, but it does mean that when you say, well, you're 21 and you're nervous, that you are going to have a challenge at your young age Right. You've, you've got a couple of years experience in changing people's minds. I have 34 years experience since I started philosophy when I was 16. I'm now 50. 10 years in a public forum, thousands of hours of debating and having conversations with people and working to change their mind. I've got, you know, thousands and thousands of shows and I've been on other people's shows, had debates. So I'm very experienced and I'm very good at what I do. There's lots of things I'm not great at. But I'm very good at this. So I'm not saying you're wrong. But what I'm saying is that when you come up to me at the ripe old age of 21, you come up to somebody who is a master persuader, somebody who's really, really good at engaging people and helping them to, to grow and learn and change their minds. And you tell me, Steph, you're doing it wrong. I'm just going to tell you, just, you know, I want to give be honest about my perspective so that you understand the, the challenges that lie ahead. When you at 21 come to me at 50, who's been doing this for 34 years, and you've maybe been doing it for a couple of years, and privately. See, when you do it privately, it's very different than doing it publicly. When you do it privately, you're doing it 
with people you already have a relationship with, which means that it's much less likely to escalate because you already have investment in the relationship. So they're much more likely to agree with you or to be conciliatory or whatever. The stakes are very low, right? Because if, if I get my way, the, the, like the, self, the immediate self-interest of millions and millions of people are going to be directly threatened. It's a very high stakes game. So there's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of problems. So if you come to me at 21 and say, Steph, I've been doing this for a couple of years, only privately with friends and family. You've been doing it in the world for 34 years as a public intellectual for, for a decade. You've got thousands of shows. You've got decades more experience than, than I do, but you're doing it wrong. I'm just telling you, it's a challenge to hear that. It doesn't mean you, you still may be. You may be the ultimate ninja. You may be way better at me than this. But what I want to know is, do you have any proof that you're really good at something you claim you're good at when so far the evidence doesn't seem to support it? All right. It is, it is possible, even though you have that many years of experience, to sometimes get carried away. And I... What does carried away mean? I'm not like... Sorry, I don't don't know what the word... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I don't know what the phrase carried away means. Well, I'm about to explain it. But what you you should do is explain it before you use a somewhat inflammatory phrase because carried away means that I'm not in control of myself. I'm not... Don't have any mastery of my emotions. I don't have your 21-year-old highly nervous maturity. So if you use a kind of insulting phrase, generally it's better to not use an inflammatory phrase, but to explain yourself ahead of time, because otherwise it just annoys people. Or maybe this is an example of how good you are at changing people's minds. But sorry, go ahead. It's really basic when you talk to someone and have a debate with someone to even if they don't change their mind right there and then in the conversation, uh, to to give them respect. And even if they don't change their mind right there and then in the conversation, they might go home and they might think about it and they might, they, they, they're, they're not going to be en- enraged or feel oh, attacked Fritz. when they feel attacked. Fritz, they, I need to, yes. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I need to ask you, <laughs> I need to ask you something. I don't know if you heard what you said. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. I have a but quote. It's very, hang on. It's very, it's very passive aggressive. So you said in a debate, it's very basic. It's very basic. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, I, th- I yeah. Okay, no, I'm still talking. It's it's you said it's very basic. So what you're doing is you're saying to me at the ripe old age of 21, you're saying to somebody who's been doing this thousands of times publicly uh, for decades, or at least a decade publicly, and many times before that. And I've been trained in debating, and I've been trained in philosophy, and I've been trained in argumentation, and so on, and trained in logic. You're saying, Steph, it's very basic what you need to do. And then you say it's important to treat people with respect to change their minds. So, so far, you've accused me of getting carried away, which is a negative. Obviously, nobody ever says anything positive. When it comes to intellectual rigor, getting carried away is a bad thing. So you've already insulted me by saying I get carried away. And then you further insulted me by saying that I'm missing something very basic in exactly what I've dedicated my life to. And then you say it's really important to treat people with respect. How are you treating me with respect? just out of curiosity, because what you're saying is, is pretty inflammatory. You understand? Yes, it is a criticism. And I think it is a concerning criticism. And that's no, no, but you said you have to treat people with respect. And you're kind uh-huh. of insulting me. How is that treating me with respect? Shouldn't you be following the rules that you think I should be following? Or are those rules only for me and not for you? How can I tell you to treat people? How can I tell you that in another way? There's only one way of telling you that. Because what I mean, I, there's only one way to tell me what? 
that I believe that sometimes you get carried away and you lose the respect for your opposition. Well, I think one way to do it would be if you feel that or if you believe that um, that it's important to treat people with respect in order to change their minds, then you should treat me with respect in order to change my mind. See, that's what I'm talking about. How should you convince me to treat people with respect, assuming that I'm not? Well, the first thing you would do is follow your own advice. Because you see, if you're not taking your advice, Fritz, I have no fucking clue why I should. That's another point. You, It's not about taking things so personally. I feel like you also take things very personally, like you're doing right now. And... It can. I feel like it clouds you. Like I, I have an. I have a quote right here. I wanna. I wanna give. Oh no, no, no! Let's just deal with the conversation we're having right now. We don't need anything else in the conversation to deal with this. Okay. So then you say I take things personally, right? Yes. What does that mean? It means that you you seem to forget that that you 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 shouldn't be so. Uh, involved to the point where you stop respecting other human beings because then you you kind of create these teams you're always saying don't create teams don't create teams but that's exactly kind of what you're doing i i have no idea but but you so you think that i seem to forget what do i seem to forget i seem to forget to treat people with respect i haven't i haven't insulted you no uh, but I'm, you for now come up with four or five very negative and unsubstantiated uh, negative things about me, right? It, yes. I, I miss very basic things. Uh, I, I don't treat people with respect. I take things too personally. Uh, mm. I, I escalate. Uh, I mean, these are all, oh, uh, and I'm forgetful. Uh, and, I, I, you know, like these are all negative things to say about me. You haven't proven any of them. Now, when someone says negative things about me without proof, that's called an insult. Now, you can say to me, well, Steph, you shouldn't take insults personally. Now, I'm not taking insults personally like you're saying something true about me. What bothers me in this conversation is not the negative stuff that you said about me. I mean, you've got no proof for it doesn't matter, right? You're just saying stuff, right? What bothers me is that you are not following your own advice, which is to treat people respectfully well i don't think saying that like telling you to treat people with respect is not respectful from my side because i no, no, have no you you're not understanding what you're doing maybe you're com- maybe you're completely blind to it i don't know in which case you just need to listen back to this and take some notes because you seem to have the um self-reflection skills of your average vampire but um what what I mean is that when you say, I'm missing very basic things, Steph, you're missing very basic things, you escalate, you don't treat people with respect, you take things too personally, you're forgetful, you, and then the other things that you've said that are sort of insults, right? They're not insults if they're true, like if you've got lots of evidence. and It's not the fact that you're insulting me that bothers me. What bothers me is that you're being completely hypocritical according to the values that you are proposing I follow. You're standing in front of me, shoveling cheesecake in your mouth, saying, Steph, you should never eat cheesecake, and no one ever should because it's poison. I don't, do you, did you want me to say it in a nicer way? Like, Steph, uh, I, 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 I don't... That's your value! You're the one saying you change people's minds by treating them nicely. 
don't, don't do now you're getting me even more passive aggressive like i'm some sort of bully and i'm saying oh you want me to do it this way fritz these are your values this is what you said uh, people should do to change their minds and you're not doing any of it i'm not telling you to treat people nicely i'm i'm not i i am like i don't treat people nicely too in debates but with respect there's a there's a difference and i have evidence and i have a quote if you would let me read it from sure, from you sure for it. All right, it's the it's in the video where it was the, about the the Muslim ban, which I I too think it's ridiculous. But anyway, here's the quote. Um, it was after you talked about uh, people going on Facebook and like uh, just uh, you know tweeting about this Muslim ban, and then you said, "Do you have any capacity to look at yourself in the mirror to see yourself to see what you have become?" base echo chambers of in-group preference from hell, no reasoning, no principles, no fact. I have less respect for these people than I do for simians. What what is that, Steph? What is that? Is is that giving respect to your opposition? If I would like to inform my friend uh, by sending you that video, what's the point of your video? If if your point of your show is to spread reason and evidence, then that should be your main concern. You, you, in your videos, you have to take those things into account. That I like, if I would want to send that video to a friend, then they it will be easier for them to see the truth and fact, truth and evidence, if they're not like disrespected in a way like that. Because it takes time to learn how to think. It takes time to learn how to think, and. Uh, it's it's not easy, you know. So we have to be above the left. We have to be above the opposition. We have to not say things like that. Why? Because it will help them see truth and evidence. It will will easier help them come to see science and come to accept facts and reason and truth. Why do you think that's true? How do you know that that's true? Because it's like um, when you say something like that in the start of a video. No, I didn't say that right at the start. I was like at the six minute. Uh, you you had this little rant before you went to the facts, which I you know I enjoy those rants actually. Like for me, they don't matter too much, but. My main point there is that if you, the most effective way of spreading truth and evidence is to not include those comments, to be impeccable with your words. How do you know? How do you know that to be true? You've got a, th- a hypothesis, I agree, but how do you know that to be true? You're saying it like it's somehow established. I've got a whole video called The Death of Reason, where I talk in, about people's emotional barriers to mm-hmm. to rationality, uh, and so I have studied this quite extensively how to change uh, people's minds. So I'm just curious if you have access to information that I don't. Uh, I am curious um, if uh, you have uh, any sources for your assertion that you're making. Uh, I just have my personal experience. That's the thing. I I am in a very like- ah. And do you think that the plural of your personal experience is somehow objective fact? or data because you your personal experience you you talk about science right and and reason and and evidence you understand that your personal experience is not scientific and is not empirical right it's not reproducible because it's only your personal experience 
So I'm not sure exactly how you get to lecture me about science when the only data set I, you have to bring to the table is unverified personal experience. You know, I, I saw a ghost. Do you believe me? A lot of scientists that it says that science is supposed to be objective. It, you're like, we are not supposed to judge what is going on. We're supposed to just say the truth and the evidence. And you, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand. I'm not a scientist. Well, you, you, I, like, I, I, I don't. Scientists don't deal with moral questions fundamentally. They don't deal with the salvation or death of Western civilization. They don't deal with that which saves the world and everything that's perfect, wonderful, and valuable, and rational, and moral, and good in it or not. They are dealing with uh, equations and physical properties and matter and energy. So I'm not sure how the supposed dispassionate nature of science ties into what I do, which is essentially a public moralist. Yeah, you're not, you're, you're not a scientist. You're, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want to do. And on your show, too, on, on your videos, too, you, like, you can speak. It's your show, you know? But it's... Do you know how many people have watched that Muslim ban show? Mm, like 250,000, like around there, maybe? No, it's, uh, if you include the podcast downloads, it's probably about a million. And maybe it could be two million. Well, you see, but then you need to show me. Because this idea that uh, I'm running the largest and most successful philosophy show, but you at the age of 21 know how to make it even bigger and better, just go make one bigger and better. I mean, the, the idea that I'm going to take advice from, do you have any public videos that you've made? No, I don't. So you have no experience engaging with the public in the realm of ideas, right? None whatsoever. No, I'm getting into it right now, I guess. No, 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 no. You have no experience whatsoever about how to engage the public in the realm of ideas, right? Zero. That's uh, correct, I guess. Do you think that... <laughs> where, where, <laughs> with zero experience, where do you get off telling me how to do my job that I've been doing for 34 years and 10 years publicly? With, with zero experience. I, you, again, you could be right. I'm just, do, do you, you understand from where I'm standing? It's rather a startling claim to be on the receiving end of. You've got zero experience. You're bringing up a show that has infinity more views than you've achieved in your 21 years. And you're telling me how I could get to 2 million when you haven't even gotten to one. Yeah, I have no internet show, but, you know, I grew up watching you. If that counts. No, right. and I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I certainly don't mind being reminded at all of how to do things uh, better. And I've got shows about the limitations of reason. I've got shows about the joy of anger. And I've also got a lot of empirical evidence that anger works really, really well in the realm of public ideas. Do you know how I know that? Because the left has been using abuse and escalation and aggression and abuse and escalation and aggression. And now, and not just now, but in the past, outright physical violence and intimidation to get their way. So Now, we can say, well, we're going to take the high ground and we're never going to descend to their level, which is kind of what 
conservatives and, and Republicans and people on the right, not that I'm on the right, but you know what I mean. Yeah. They have been trying this approach of taking the high road and speak dispassionately about the data and so on for the past 150 years. And you know what's happened? Communism, fascism, national socialism, totalitarianism, the rise of political correctness, the rise of leftism, the swamping of the economy, the flooding of third world migrants. It has been a complete clusterfrack of near biblical proportions, this rising above and being nice about things. It could be that you just don't want to get involved in the fight. And I, I understand that and I respect that. I mean, I shouldn't say I respect that. I understand that and I accept that. But the idea that we just speak dispassionately like a robot about facts and evidence and somehow we're going to win the battle of ideas, I'd like to know what evidence you have for that other than some completely unverifiable personal experience that I don't actually believe. Yeah, maybe, you know, the world of like politics and like the ideas and stuff like that is just way more nastier than like I, I ever could imagine, you know, uh, but like just the like there's so many leftists. I study sociology, you know, like I have a like bunch of leftists in my class university right now. And it's just like I watch your videos and like the reason why I call it is because I send them a video and they just they can't take it. You know what I mean? And, well, but you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't start off by sending them a video where I'm railing against an incredibly dangerous lie being put out by the left, right? Like no, this no. Muslim ban thing is an incredibly dangerous lie. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, lives could hang in the balance, right? If, if, if someone gets through this who otherwise would have been prevented and they go shooting up, say, a gay nightclub in Florida where dozens and dozens of people could get murdered, yeah, that's kind of high stakes business, right? Uh, and uh, so I'm acutely aware of that. And that's why I speak so passionately about people who post and clutter up the public sphere by repeating lies with no personal examination and creating an echo chamber that can escalate to cause the deaths of many, many, many people. I mean, just think of one of these lunatics who could get through this ban um, that I guess tonight was at least temporarily overturned by the uh, slightly left-leaning Ninth Circuit. But uh, yeah, I mean, what was it, 86 people or so killed in um, France by one of these truck-driving uh, lunatics? Uh, it is a high-stakes uh, business, and uh, the left uh, have been winning. Now, one of the things that you do when you're losing is you look at who's winning, and you kind of do what they do. You have to, otherwise you just lose. You just keep losing. And you may go down with dignity, but you're still going down. And the um, the Western civilization, as I see it, is far too important for, um, you know, white-gloved squeamishness when it comes to the kind of verbal tussles that um, win. So what are you hoping to do with the sociology degree? Uh, I'm, I, I just want to get uh, uh, one more thing. Thing. Uh, let me see here. What are you looking something up? No, no, I'm just curious. What are you going to do with your sociology? What do you want to do with your sociology degree? Uh, well, it's, you know, a bachelor is worthless, basically. So I'm going to get a master's and, uh, you know, hope maybe become a researcher. What do you mean? Uh, researching all kinds of social phenomena. Uh, but you're not. I assume you're not on the left, right? No, I'm. I I I I agree very much with what you say, and 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 y yeah, basically. Uh, so I'm not on the left. I'm not on the right. Um, yeah.
do you want to spend the rest of your life around leftists? Because isn't that kind of what sociology is going to become for you? I mean, it already is to a large degree, right? Look, this is the difference between you and me. Like, it doesn't bother me too much because it's not like I don't see them as these like blood sucking creatures. You know what I mean? Like, they might have, they might not have learned to to think. You know, but that doesn't mean you know they they're not human. And well, when uh, did I ever say uh, they weren't human? I mean, I I understand biology. <laughs> Well, you said you had respect for monkeys more than the left. And many of the, those people on the left are, it's not there like consciously, like they, these things are external like ideas and they take them as part of their personality, right? And when you haven't learned how to think, you, those things stay with your personality, you know? And well, let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Um, there are no simians that I know of that are posting extremely dangerous lies about a particular policy that can get people killed. And that's what I mean, in that a simian isn't actually going to do anything to harm Western civilization, but uh, people who um, confidently post very, very strongly uh, worded and like the, the Trump's, what's called the quote Muslim ban, and we're going to debate about the contents and all of that, is um, uh, the, the left was posting about it very strongly. Yeah, you know, that it's racist, that it's xenophobic, that it's Islamophobic, that, it, I mean, they were very, very strong about this. Now, this doesn't mean that anyone, everyone who reposted it, but, you know, if you're going to repost extremely foundational moral condemnations, you really should have some idea what you're talking about. It's highly irresponsible to, um, to get things wrong in, in the realm of, you know, really foundational moral questions. And the left... Um, was mischaracterizing as a whole, this uh, whole process, that it was some sort of Muslim ban. This is inflammatory. And do you know why? Because if you call it a Muslim ban, you're going to make Muslims, some Muslims, very upset by that characterization. And um, well, majority of Muslims, of course, very peaceful, but you know, there are a few uh, who might escalate from there. So calling it a Muslim ban is creating a clash of cultures and a clash of civilizations, which is exactly what ISIS once, right? ISIS wants to radicalize the moderate Muslims. So people who are out there calling it a Muslim ban are uh, really poking um, uh, at the roots of uh, uh, massive social conflict. And um, yeah, it's extremely uh, dangerous, extremely dangerous to do that. Uh, where that leads is to a not good place at all. I think people have to take responsibility for that. Now, what I do is sometimes gentle and sometimes it's not. I have always said that... Um, I treat people the best I can the first time I meet them. And after that, I treat them the way that they treat me. And having been on the receiving end of some leftist criticism, I know how they play. And uh, I am not, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> if, if, somebody, if somebody turns a chess game into a boxing match, I'm not going to get pummeled while I'm attempting to move my pawn. Like, for example, I understand how disgusting it is, for example, that Obama, like, selected these countries and Obama did all these drone strikes and they left, they don't say anything, you know? I know how disgusting it is that they don't say anything then, and then now they just go crazy on Trump, you know? But there is a way to speak, to be, you can be enraged, you can be passionate, and I love it when you, when you are those things without being disrespectful. You can have those great speeches you know like you usually do you when you have so hang on do you do you find do you find that the left is more disrespectful or me 
Yeah, but it doesn't matter what the left does. That's uh, that's that's my point. It doesn't matter. Like, no, 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 no. If you no, no, it does matter, Fritz. Because if you're going to have a universal value that you want to impose on me called be respectful, mm-hmm. then I need to know how you impose it on others. Because if you're going to make up the supposedly universal value and only Im- apply it to me, I'm going to tell you to take a, a long walk off a short pier. I don't, I don't play that game. I don't play that game of, Steph, there are these higher moral standards that only apply to you, but everyone else gets off scot-free. Right? That's, that's a horrible manipulation. If you have a standard called treat people with respect, then I want to know how you apply it to the left. And if you say, well, I don't apply it to the left because they they're not subject to my standards, then I, then I know it's not a universal standard that you're applying consistently. And if you say, well, you see, the left is totally hypocritical by holding Obama to one standard and holding Trump to another standard that's much higher, and they don't apply these standards to, to, to Obama, but they apply them to Trump, and that's horrible, that's hypocritical. Well, Fritz, it's exactly what you're doing, exactly what you're doing. You're holding me to this higher standard and you're excusing the left completely. That's just cowardly. I'm the more reasonable person. You know that. So you're calling in to lecture me about something. You know I'm not going to get really mad at you. You know I'm not going to go out and trash you publicly. You know I'm not going to try and get you fired. You know I'm going to get not going to try and get you in trouble with your employer. You know all of that. So you're coming in and lecturing me about respect, but you're avoiding the left. And you say, well, I don't want to apply those standards to the left. Why do I get the special focus of Fritz's high moral standards. Why the hell don't you apply them to the left if they're so universal? And I think it's pretty clear that the left is a little bit more aggressive in these areas than anything I could even conceive of. I mean, they're out there punching people who want to go see Milo speak, for heaven's sakes. I just had these people on the show. Are you out there lecturing them about treating people with respect when they're out there encouraging uh, uh, attacks upon people who are simply there to exercise their right of free speech and peaceful assembly? When you've got the mainstream media out there attacking and encouraging and fomenting riots against people who have different opinions, why are you picking on me rather than the people who are actually fomenting real, direct uh, violence against the innocent? Or is it just me who gets the benefit of your high moral standards? Because I, like I said in the start, it's your show. You can do whatever the hell you want. Like you can talk whatever the hell you want. So I'm not imposing anything on you. I'm saying that I believe that it would be better and a more efficient way to spread reason and truth to still be, you know, passionate, still be angry, but to not be disrespectful. It's about the okay, most. Okay, we went through this already. We went through this already. We went through this already. Steph asked you, are you holding the left to account with these high standards that you're imposing? Or is it just Steph that's being held to those standards? That was the question. We went through the previous thing before. So answer the question. Are you holding other people on the left to these standards? Are you just holding people to the right or Steph to these standards? Well, I don't think I'm holding anyone to these uh, standards. Fritz, I don't, I don't think you're cut out for this, this kind of conflict. This, you, you, you don't want to criticize the left because the left can be very vicious. You want to criticize me because I'm not. I mean, I'm hot-tempered at times and all that, but I, I've got no problem with that philosophically. But um, if, if disrespect is your issue, you should be out there lecturing the left, not me, right? But you're not doing that. But I don't care who are don't the disrespectful. That's not what it's about. It's I'm about- sorry? I don't care if people are disrespectful. 
Oh, good. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next caller because you don't care whether people are disrespectful. So this whole thing has been a complete waste of time because you don't care about this at all. You've just got some weird emotional thing where you like to talk about this stuff when it has no value to you whatsoever. You don't care whether people are disrespectful, but somehow I shouldn't be disrespectful. What a bunch of nonsense. I'm sorry you're not cut out for this kind of fight. I guess you got to go back to the lab and study stuff rather than join us in changing the world. I wish you would, but I don't think you ever will. Thanks a lot for the call. Let's move on to the next caller. Steph, before we move on to the the next caller, if you would let me talk and you don't forget to, um, I know this is really basic, but if you could go on one of your little rants, I'd be curious what you have to say about patience and tolerance as a virtue. Do you think patience is a virtue? Do I think patience and I think that to you pay like would like. I, th- I think if people deliver you honest goods, you give them honest money. And I think if people deliver you shoddy goods, you don't give them the money. You, you return the goods. If people, if people pay you with counterfeit money, you don't deliver the goods. It's an honest exchange. So if people treat me with respect, then I will treat them with respect. And I will treat people with respect the first time I meet them. But I've been dealing with the left for 34 years. So I think I know a little bit about them here and there. Uh, and so I don't think that patience and tolerance abstracted or any kind of virtue at all. Patience and tolerance is a big white flag by which you surrender your balls to the combine harvester of more aggressive and sociopathic people. I do not think it's a virtue at all. I think we want justice and honesty in our dealings with people. And if you're treated with dignity and respect, then I think it's fair to return that to the people that you're dealing with absent fundamental differences in values, right? I mean, the the old dignity and respect thing, you know, if they want you thrown in jail for exercising your right of free speech, then it doesn't matter how nicely (laughs) they advocate that position, your ass could still hit a jail cell for speaking your mind peacefully. So no, I think that like this sort of respect is an abstract virtue and and treating people nicely is an abstract virtue uh, is... um, is just horrendous. It's, it's a ridiculous and horrible standard, and it's a cloak for cowardice. Um, it is instilled by the left, right? Uh, this It's instilled by the left. Oh, tolerance. Oh, virtue. Oh, love. Love trumps hate. They, they dig all of that stuff in so that they can further prey upon you. They must further prey upon you. They're basically saying, well, you've got to pay all your debts, all your debts, no matter what currency we pay you with. You've got to send us the goods. Even if we give you a piece of toilet paper with the word 100 written on it and say it's a $100 bill, you've got to ship us the goods no matter what. You've got to treat us with tolerance and virtue and respect and dignity. These are just buzzwords that are designed to have you disconnect yourself from your passions and end up surrendering because you're scared and because you've got a rule which says you can't get passionate, you can't get assertive, you can't get outraged and upset and focused and you can't fight for what you value and you can't fight for what you believe in because you've got to be like Spock. You've got you to drug yourself with this mantra, dignity, respect, love, dignity, respect, love. No, no, that has been going on for far too long. I don't advocate violence. No initiation of the use of force. Self-defense is fine. No initiation of the use of force. But strong words, passionately delivered, morally precise, civilization-saving language, Mm, moderation in the defense of virtue is a vice. Moderation in the defense of virtue is a vice. And when people come on and tell me, well, you've got to treat people with dignity and respect, and I say, okay, why am I on your list? How many people did you go through the list of lecturing people about this before you came to me? Have you gone to the left? Have you gone to the black clad protesters out there in California? Have you gone to the people in the women's march? 
how many people have you gone to? Have you gone to the people who write hit pieces about my friends in the newspapers and say, well, you got to treat people with dignity and respect. How do you get to me on the list? Where am I in your priority of people treating other people badly for no reason? And nobody has an answer, of course, because there is no answer other than, Steph, you're the reasonable one, so I'm going to lecture you. And you know who sent Fritz to me? It wasn't Fritz. may have been his mom. I'll tell you who sent Fritz to me. His co-workers. Because you see, Fritz <laughs> doesn't want to have a confrontation. He wants to be confrontational, but he doesn't want to have a confrontation. Those two two different things, which is why he sends in this email. I'm 21, and I want to tell you, Steph, how you should... <laughs> communicate with people in the world, even though you've got hundreds of millions of views and downloads. And then I say, okay, so this is what you're saying. No. Okay. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. He wants to, right. So he doesn't want to have confrontations, but he wants to change people's minds. So he's just invented this fog called dignity and respect and whatever it is. Right. So that, and he wants me to change my tone so that he can send my videos to the people he works with. And so that he doesn't get in any trouble, right? He wants me to change my tone which has been enormously successful. He wants me to change my tone so that he has stuff to send to people that doesn't get him in trouble. Now, my question is, why bring me up at all, Fritz? Why? Why bother? You don't need to. You can take my arguments. You can strip out all the stuff you find objectionable, all the tone and whatever, and you could just bring the arguments. But he doesn't want to do that. He wants me to be the proxy. He doesn't want to get into any trouble with his coworkers. He wants to send me as a proxy, but not in any way that might upset them. Why, why is he so worried about them being upset? <laughs> Surely they're going to treat him with dignity and respect or me with dignity and respect and all that. And of course, he wasn't treating me with dignity and respect at all. I mean, kind of insulting and insinuating. Steph, you mustn't judge others. I'm going to judge you badly for judging. <laughs> it's, all, it's all nonsense. But no, no. Um, I said this before. En- enough, enough, enough of the niceness that loses. Uh, it's, uh, it's too important uh, for this... Um, Victorian Jane Austen sliced cucumber sandwiches and white gloves etiquette. Um, it's I'm sorry, it's a street fight, and I'm going to stay on the verbal side of the street fight because that's my area of expertise. But it is a street fight, and uh, it is an epistemological street fight that is going on at the moment. It is a street fight around basic values. And um, if you don't have any adrenaline in a street fight, if your heart is not pumping a mile a minute in a street fight, if you got no fight or flight in a street fight, you're going to lose. That was great stuff, but I still think it'd be better if you completely falsified your emotional experience and said that you had respect for people that you don't have respect for. I think that would be great. I have no evidence for it, but yet I think it would be great, and therefore you should do it. Moving on to the next caller, we have... There's nothing like lying to people about your entire emotional experience to convince them of the validity of your position. <laughs> okay, go on. All right, up next we have Ray. Ray wrote in and said... If there is evidence that universal basic income can eliminate poverty and is at least superior to welfare, would it not be unethical to implement universal basic income? That's from Ray. Hi. Hey, Ray. How you doing? Good. Um, can I first address something, um, a lie that I feel like you just told related to economics and basic income um, from the last uh, call? From the last, like the one with just with Fritz? Right. Because Did you we said talk that about universal basic income? You we talked. To, you said that leftism has caused the rise of communism. 
I don't think I said leftism has caused the rise of communism. I think communism is certainly on the left, and the rise of leftism would be associated with the rise of communism. Okay. But I wouldn't say that everyone who's on the left is directly responsible for the rise of communism. The coincidental phenomenon, right? I mean, left is the umbrella term and communism is just one of the terms on the welfare state and, and government education and central control of currency and socialism and so on, right? Okay, so can we first agree that there was no attempt at communism or equality in the Soviet Union? Can we just get that out of the, like, the discussion? Sorry, there was no attempt at what? There was no attempt at communism or equality in the Soviet Union. Are you saying that the Soviet Union was not communist? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Did the government control the means of production? Uh, that's not what um, the definition of communism, though. The definition is of it that workers control the means of production? Yes. Yeah, so, did the workers control the means of production? Did, okay, let's just do it that way. Did the workers control the means of production in the Soviet Union? Yes or no? Did they? Well, somewhat, certainly, because they had no, workers' they committees and they had uh, no, uh, workers' committees that could vote. You're Sorry, if you're going to ask me a question and then immediately start talking when I answer, we're going to have a very, very short conversation. Do you understand? Okay, continue. Thank you. Don't get upset. Don't get offended. You ask me a question, you immediately start talking in my ear when I answer it. Okay, continue. But I, I'm saying is within an authoritarian state, you already know that the oh God, everyone's no going to drive me crazy tonight. Okay, there was some control that the workers had over the means of production in the Soviet Union. How so? I just explained it. Okay, but you know that people starved oh, to death. Oh, maybe you were Soviet talking and didn't right? hear me? Okay, are you aware that people starved to death in the Soviet Union? What do you mean? I've, I've done shows on that. Okay. Of course. And are you aware that there are people who were up to maybe 300 pounds in the Soviet Union? So that there was a huge uh -huh. wealth inequality in the Soviet Union? Sure. So you're saying that the workers, with their control over the state... They had enough, so much control over the state that they somehow decided to starve themselves? Are you saying that there's nothing in totalitarianism, there's nothing in communism that, that um, causes totalitarianism, even though every communist country is a totalitarian dictatorship? That's completely unrelated. It's, okay. it's, an, it's a massive coincidence. Okay, so, but you, do you understand that um, some people just lie and say that they're communists? when they're not. You know how Kim Jong-un says that North Korea is democratic, but it's not really democratic at all, and everybody knows that? So, so you're saying that everyone who wants a totalitarian control over a country just happens to call themselves communists rather than capitalist. That's well, a complete how many dictators call themselves, how many dictators say that they um, are democratic? How many, how many authoritarian regimes say that they are, de they are democratic? Almost every single one. So... I mean, it's yes, but there are democratic countries that aren't authoritarian regimes. There are no communist countries that aren't health sent dictatorships. So it's a false okay. equivalency. But I'm saying that the very definition of socialism and communism is a classless, stateless, egalitarian society where the workers democratically own the means of production. So by definition, that by definition, those totalitarian countries don't actually count as communism. You understand no, that, right? No, they do. No, they do. Okay, no, this is don't. this is this general. No, this is this no, general theory don't. and practice stuff, right? I can don't. say I can say that uh, so and so is a mass murderer, uh, and and their definition of mass murdering is to give people vitamin C tablets in winter, when they're actually just stabbing people. Okay, or, or they say, well, no, I, I'm a mass murderer who stabs people, but my mass murdering is it's actually surgery. I mean, you can redefine things, and you actually look at the empirical results. So my question is. When a country has an existing system where the means of production are privately owned, right, in, in some sort of free market or quasi-free market, the means of production are privately owned by individuals, right? They have legal right to the factories that they have created, 
from saving, from hard work, from investment, from inheritance, whatever it's going to be, they have legal title to the factories that they have created. And they have moral title too, since assuming it's a relatively free market, they did in fact go out and work to create these factories. So let's say I have a factory which produces okay. Steph bots. I have a factory. Hang on, hang on. I have a factory. How does it transition to a communist system? Well, the first thing we would have to address is who has the right to um, declare that they own property. Well, it's my factory. I, I built it. I created it. Okay, but you, if the first thing that has to be addressed is who has the right to take property, who to say this is mine. No, I didn't take property. I don't know if you're not hearing what I'm saying. I created the factory. Maybe I was not clear. From, from what resources? From my savings, from my investment, and from paying the people who helped me to build the factory okay, in a free exchange of value. I'm sorry? Where did you get those from? From savings? Well, I got my savings from not spending my money on wine, women, and song, but rather putting it under my mattress or in the bank or something. Okay, so there, I mean, there was a time when there was no real property, right? Like when humans, for example, were just hunter-gatherers, there was no real property, right? Of course there was. No, there wasn't. I don't know what there you were mean. times when there was no property, where nobody. No, of course, there was property. No, there you, you just said it, hunter gatherer. So if I go out and gather berries, who is responsible for those berries coming back to the camp? Well, yeah, but those that those resources are shared amongst that group, though it's not a formal. No, I can choose to share them. Property, but but if if you go out and hunt. You, you, if you and I go out and hunt, we're the ones who brought down the deer, right? We bring it back. Now we can choose to share and all of that kind of stuff. But saying there was no property, like, like if you and I go out to hunt and we shoot a deer and then some other group comes and tries and grabs a deer and take it away, what will we do? Oh, sorry, can you repeat that? So you and I go out and hunt a deer. Okay. And we use our bow and arrow. We shoot the deer. We kill the deer. Right. And then some other group, some, some other tribe comes and tries and takes our deer away, what are we going to do? Okay, so from my perspective... No, no, no. What are we going to do? Tell me what we would do in that moment. Anyways, from my perspective... Tell I, me what we would I do in that moment. In my mind, the material universe is... So now, hang on. Don't fuck, fuck the material universe. You and I... Look, you can pretend that I haven't asked you a question, but guess what? This is my show. If you don't ask my okay, questions, okay. I'll just move on to the next caller. I mean, that's perfectly fine with me. I got lots of callers tonight. You and I go out and hunt a deer, we shoot the deer, the deer falls down dead, and some other tribe, some other group, tries to grab our deer and take off with it. What do we do? Um, anyways, yeah, you would, act, well, you would protect your hunt, but I'm just saying that So, So hang on, so, so, so it's our deer. That's, but that's a long way from claiming property as in claiming entire land for yourself. You know what I mean? You said there was no property. I just gave you an example of property. You can admit that you were wrong or you want to refine the definition, property. but don't oh, just weasel out like I didn't that, say that, anything. I, don't, I still technically don't consider that property, though, because that's more – I think property has a much um, more, like, legal, formal usage, whereas that's much more of an informal thing that the hunter-gatherers did. You know what I mean? So There's it's only property if you have a court system? Excuse me? It's only property if you have a court system? Um, I think that it's only property if there is a very strong power enforcing it. So if if I, in a primitive society, if I want to eat your arm, you have no right to exercise property control over your arm. I can just cut it off and eat it. You have the right to self-defense, but 
Okay, so you can protect your personal property called your own body, right? Okay, but this is getting into sort of that um, anarcho-capitalism type of... Um, no, 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 um, you're bringing in buzzwords. I'm asking you basic questions. You have the right to use violence to defend your personal property called your body, right? Um, well, okay, I support majority rule. That's my thing, right? No, no, you're not answering my question. This is well, yes or no. Do you have the right to protect your personal property called your body? In other words, does a woman have the right to say no to a man who wants to have sex with her? My thing is that I support majority rule. So, cause okay, I you can keep repeating that, and I'll just keep, I'll repeat my question once more, and if you don't answer it, I'll move on to the next call. I'm not being threatening. I'm just, this is just okay. the reality. I like to have conversations, not to, not somebody just repeating things like a broken record. Does a woman I'm have a right to, to say no to a man though. who wants to have sex with her? I'm trying to explain my position, though. Which Does a woman I have the right to say no to a man who wants to have sex with her? Well, obviously, but I, that has nothing. Okay, to so so hang on. So she she can she has she has she can exercise control over her personal property called her vagina, right? Well, yeah. She controls the like use of that body. vagina. Okay, but having control over your own body is not the same as having control over um, other people's land. You know what I mean? And no, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, well, okay, so I have control over my own body, but that doesn't mean I can um, steal other people's land. That doesn't okay, let me, ask you, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. If I go and steal something from you, well, first of all, stealing requires the concept of property, so I don't know how you're going to evade that one. But let's say I come and steal something from you. Am I responsible for that theft? Am I responsible for the moral action of stealing from you? Well, okay, I, the one type of property that I do agree with is the idea of um, collective um, collective. Okay, no, no. You stop bringing in collective, you're not answering my question. If I steal something from you, am I responsible for the action of stealing? Well, okay, but let's talk about what, what is theft, though. What counts as theft? In my you just mind, said if someone goes and steals someone else's land. So you, we already understand the concept of theft. So if I come and steal something from you, am I morally responsible for stealing? Am I responsible for the stole, action well, called stealing? Who stole what first? No, 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 no. Let's just assume that, that okay, let me, let me, let me, if you're having trouble with this one, let's go. Let's say that Bob, some guy named Bob, goes and rapes a woman. Is he responsible for that rape? Well, yes. Okay, good, good. Okay, that's fine. So he is, Bob is responsible for the effects of his actions. He owns the effects of his actions, right? I mean, if Bob rapes okay. the woman, we go and punish Bob because he was the one who raped her. So he's responsible for what he creates, for what he does, for the effects of the actions of his body on the world. He owns what he creates. Now, this is as true of a crop that you've planted and watered and grown. It is true of an unowned oh, land that you have true. enclosed no, and you have uh, taken control no, of and you have cleared and you have planned. You can keep talking. I'll just keep talking until I'm done that's because it's my show again. So true. if you have taken unowned land and you have um, you've cleared it and you've built a house, uh, or these things exist that didn't exist before, you own the effects of your actions in a positive sense in the stuff that you create in the same way that you own the effects of your actions in a negative way in terms of crimes that you may commit. So, okay, so we own ourselves and we own the effects of our actions. So how much do you owe to the Native Americans then for their land? I'm sorry? So how much is owed to the Native Americans for taking land that belongs to them? Well, nothing. Why? Because I, I didn't take any lands from anyone. Somebody took that land, and then you acquired that stolen property. But they're all dead. No, no, no. So you see, if I steal... And how much, how much do you, the Indians... How, okay, how much do the Indians... How much do the Indians owe to 
each other for enslaving each other. Okay, let's. If I how much did the Indians owe to each other for initiating wars and genocides against each other? Can I make a point? So if I steal a painting from you, and I give that painting to my child, when I die, does that painting belong to my child? If you steal a painting from me, yes, and then you die, I die. I gave the painting. Right. So, and my child inherited that painting from me. Right. He didn't steal a painting from you, but he inherited that painting from me. So who does that painting belong to? Does it belong to my kid now, or does it belong to you? But stealing is illegal. Ah, see, there we go. There we go. But exactly, well, okay, let's, let's talk about that. So land was stolen from the Native Americans, right? No, no, no. Sorry, how, how was it stolen? They were nomads. They weren't mostly farmers, right? They were nomads. How was it stolen? Well, I believe in collective. That's why I said I believe in human collective ownership over the land. So the natives collectively owned that area. And that was, it was their choice to, de- to allot property the way they wanted to, right? And if they say, okay, well, let's not really talk about Well, no, property. but they didn't respect, hang on, but they didn't respect each other's property rights. They regularly waged war and enslaved people. They that's found pits with like, hang on, hang okay. on, hang on, hang on man, for God's sakes. One more interruption, on one more interruption, one more interruption. I'm moving on. Okay, it's your choice. I'm exercising okay, control ahead. over the property go of ahead. my time and my ear. Go ahead. Okay, thanks. You keep saying go ahead like go I'm ahead. being irrational, but you keep yammering into my ear while I'm trying to make a point. Okay, go ahead. The natives in North America did not respect each other's property rights at all. They raided, they took people as slaves, they killed, they, they found pits with like 500 bodies thrown in with their skulls tortured and crushed and maimed and, and they raped and they, so, so they didn't. They didn't respect each other's property rights, but somehow the Westerners who come over and actually offer value for, in return for the property and enter into contracts and enter into treaties, oh, some of which were broken though. by... Oh, okay, we're moving on. Still Thanks fast. very much for your call. I appreciate that, but uh, I'm going to have to stick to my word. Let's move on to the next caller. All right. It's, oh, that's a shame because we very rarely get communists to call into the show, and I, I kind of wanted to talk about universal basic income, but I guess he had other ideas. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, people with that kind of re- lack of restraint. Anyway, go on. <laughs> All right. Up next, we have Foster. Foster wrote in and said, Having grown up in Puerto Rico in the 1960s and seen the corrosive effect of dependence on government handouts, I am very alarmed to see the younger generation of women wanting to be dependent on government. Birth control, tampons, government-paid abortions, they're all just a start. My generation mostly saw themselves as becoming financially independent What can people, and women like myself, do to reverse the tide? That's from Fosta. Hey, Fosta, how are you doing tonight? Very well. Thank you for taking my phone call. My pleasure. I'm I'm sorry if you (laughs) had to listen to perhaps some testy exchanges in the past, but (laughs) I'm in a fine mood. It yes. Yeah, I'm in a fine mood, and I'm looking forward to uh, to the chat. So, so yeah, tell me, you know, you you and I are are old enough to, to know some of what what the world was like before all of this, you know, crazy government welfare state and dependence and single mom stuff was going on. So can you help people, particularly those even younger than us, to sort of understand what it was like before and how how things were organized? Well, when I was growing up in Puerto Rico, it was in the 1960s, and this is about the time when I became aware that there were a lot of people coming on welfare because my father owned a farm, and once the welfare 
benefits started coming into the island at a fairly large amount. Um, my father went broke, and at least farmed it. So I left Puerto Rico when I was 19. I transferred to, to another college outside of the island. And um, I was a business major, so I was the things that I was interested in, in were people like Peter Drucker and Milton Friedman and that kind of thing. And the girls, you know, when you're a girl and you were an economics major in college, most of your classmates were men. So the girls that were with me were also people oriented like me who were interested, you know, in earning a living and not going on adult and essentially leeching off society. So over the years, Puerto Rico has become increasingly dependent, including the gentleman that called um, quite a while ago, and I caught that that um, podcast. Um, and I estimate at this point that something like 85% of the population of Puerto Rico is dependent on government, either jobs or government benefits, which is alarming. So now I'm a lot older and I'm seeing all of these girls who are trying basically to go into what... Um, I believe he was an anthropologist. Lionel Tiger calls uh, bureaucracy that they're married to the state because the state provides for their support and that of their children. So that's why I'm calling. You know, it's, I, I I don't see an end to it. Oh, tragically, there will be an end to it. It's just not going to be pretty, right? I mean, it can't continue. You say eighty-five percent, while the other fifteen percent are um, e either in hospital or they have plane tickets somewhere else, right? I mean, you, you, you can't survive with that level of dependence uh, on on state redistribution, right? I mean, it, it, it can't continue. It's going to end. It, it's just a question of whether it's a soft landing or a hard landing. Well, in my case, essentially all of my family, including, including most of my extended family, have left the island years ago just because of the lack of opportunities. You know, people, when you, when you have a... For instance, if you're a medical doctor, you can get paid much better in other countries than like in the way you do staying in, in Puerto Rico because the opportunities are much lesser and it, it becomes an endless cycle. Right. Now, when you talk to, to the younger women who are making these decisions, do you know what, what, the thought, what their thought process is? How did they arrive at the decision to just like have kids go on welfare? Um, what I have seen in, in the girls that are living here in the continental U.S., it's not so much that they're thinking of it as living off welfare. What they're, what I see is that they want to be employed in either government jobs or private enterprise jobs, and they have not a clue, and I mean no idea, what it costs for an employer to provide benefits for an employee. So now the thing is, they're talking about, you know, they want equal pay. They want um, six months of paid maternity leave and all that kind of thing without having any clue at all of what it costs for an employer to provide this. So my advice has been if they sincerely are worried that they're not getting equal pay, they really should either start their own business or they should take a job where they're entirely paid on commission. I have done both things. <laughs> it's hard, but it gives you a much better, much better grip on reality than what it that is, is uh, to, 
to put That's a pussy very cat interesting. and go around complaining about inequality. That is uh, brilliant, and and I n- I never thought of that before. Which is not to say everything I've never thought about is brilliant, but but it is uh, of course, yeah. Just just go on commission, right? And and go on piecework, get paid for what what we used to call in the business world, eat what you kill, uh, and uh, then. <laughs> Right then, it, you should be perfectly equal to a man. But they want the government to force the employers to give them more money, which kind of, I think, to me, indicates that they don't really think that they're worth it in the free market. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, I, 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 I never had any daughters. I have a son. And another thing that concerns me, and actually the reason why I have continued listening to your shows, is that the way I see it, it there's a point sometimes in men's lives where they have to. Um, be protected either by their wives or their children because of disability or or illness or, you know, whatever. And I see a whole society, almost a whole generation of young or older men that may have to rely for life and death decisions on a woman whose idea of demanding equal rights is to (laughs) go topless like they did in Argentina on Tuesday. Or put on or dress up like a labia and who is on welfare <laughs> instead of a woman who knows what the real world is about. It, uh, I'm baffled. I understand. <laughs> I, I, I understand. And I, I share some of this bafflement. Um, it, it, it appears to me like the actions of crazy people. Um, yes. And I, I can. Uh, I can sort of understand where, where the thinking we could say comes from, but it is is pretty hard to trace. And, and what has this done to the culture um, that that you remembered and, and where it is now? Well, I I haven't even gone back to Puerto Rico in over twenty in, in almost twenty years at this point. I mean, but the the problem with you have a, when you have a culture of welfare like that is that. You don't really see it as a corruption of the human spirit. What you what you see is you see people who th- think of themselves as making a rational economic decision because, of course, if you would rather stay home and not do anything and get paid for it, you're going to do that as opposed to having to go out and, you know, earn your keep from... Like they said in the Bible, the sweat of your brow, you know. So, so I, I I don't see a large mass of people around the world, and this is not just Puerto Rico. You know, in populist governments all over the world, in Europe, in here in the United States, the welfare mentality is just a form of corruption, a corruption from the government and from the people who are asking for it. Yeah. And it does, it does breed a kind of, to me, it almost brings a spiritual laziness uh, and a disconnection from reality. You know, everything that we consume has to be produced somewhere by someone, like everything from an ear of corn to a house. I mean, someone has got to spend all that time, money and energy to, to build stuff. And when you just like, when the government sets up this conveyor belt of just stuff comes to your house, it kind of detaches you from the reality of of how much work and 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 skill and effort and labor it takes. I mean, just think of a potato coming from a farm to your house if you live downtown. I mean, that's a huge. But it just beca- it comes very disconnected, uh, and people end up with this sense that 
reality just coughs things up into your fridge and and you know like stuff just appears food stamps it's it's magic you know just stuff appears and it's cool and 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 this sense of like the food chain and and how complicated it is and how much work it is when you don't have to provide value to society you forget how much value society has and and requires i don't know if that makes any sense but no it does it certainly makes sense um my son and his friends are in a an industry where they essentially they're freelancing for different companies and the guys who do well are the guys who do learn to provide value for an employer and the ones who learn to manage their budgets and so on so on the one hand you see people like this and in in my case you know I, I see my son and his friends but at the same time these are young men who have absolutely no plan to marry or have children or anything like that and you have a term for it i think it's like guys going their way i forget what you call it uh men going their own way or mgtow or migtow yeah how was that migtow it's called migtow men going their own way it's the idea that um if society doesn't value men uh that men should focus on their own happiness and not get entangled with women in the family court system and divorces uh, and uh, that it's uh, it's dangerous it's risky it's unproductive and um we should basically tend to men should tend their own gardens enjoy their own lives uh, and uh avoid getting entangled in a society that views them as disposable objects for the pleasure of female the pleasure and profit of female voters yeah that's that's another form of corruption too yeah, but it's a more of a reactionary form of corruption, and it doesn't corrupt others, really. I mean, the welfare no, state... No, I don't, I don't right. refer to the guys doing this. I mean, the guys who are doing that are certainly doing what it seems to me is the right thing. It's the form that the women are adapting themselves to is corrupting not only their generation, but the next one, too. Well, this is the great... One of the great problems, and it's the problem I have the most heartbreak over the FASTA. I mean, it is uh, a brutal problem, which is um, what is happening to the children in these father-absent families. Um, you, you know, it's, at some point, the money runs out, and the women and the men who've adapted themselves to the welfare state are going to face a big transition. And it's going to be painful, and it's going to be difficult, but there is a kind of, well... You take what you want and you pay for it, right? You want to live off the welfare state and you bleed the economy dry and you bleed the treasury dry and you breed the debtors dry and, and then eventually you you run out of money. Like if you want to not have a job and live off your visa, at some point you're going to run into trouble, right? And oh, yeah. at least, right. So the people who have voted for this and who've chosen this lifestyle, they're having a relatively good time. I assume otherwise they would change what they're doing. But at some point, the money's going to run out, and then it's going to be very painful for them. But their children are not having a good time. You know, we've had this whole propaganda for the past 50 years about men are not important, men are not useful, men are pigs, men are chauvinists, men are patriarchs, men are, you know, it's all coming from the left because they want to split up families and destabilize the West and make women dependent on the state. And and uh, and also, you know, if you, if you can split up families, boys grow up with less testosterone, but it's environmentally. And then they're less, like, say, Swedish men. Why are they not fighting for their country? Because mm -hmm. oh, they 
they're not men in the way that men were in the past when 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 men were raised by men and uh, you grow up in a female centric environment and you you become half a half a girl and then you're pretty easy to conquer so but but the kids the kids didn't ask for any of this the kids didn't want any of this and the kids will really really suffer uh, in this situation um the the men feel unnecessary so the men in a way, never have to grow up. And I say this, I became a father somewhat later in life, but it's what, one of the things that grows you up very, very quickly. And um, and so they can live this life of, you know, video games and basement dwelling and perpetual moving and, and travel. And, you know, it's it's a fine existence in a empty kind of way. And it doesn't ground you much for any kind of happy second half of your life. But by the time that comes along, it's usually too late to, to fix, but um, it's the kids. I mean, how how are they faring in in your community? Well, in 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 my particular case, there hasn't been so much a it, with the people I'm close to. There hasn't been so much of that because they I I have not only a wide variety of friends. There are also a wide variety of friends of different backgrounds, but with tra- very traditional lives. So it's almost a contradiction to see people who are grounded with their families and so on, while at the same time seeing a whole generation of people that I have come across that I'm not very close to who have kids and essentially the kids are outsourced. And it's um uh, you mean like daycares and stuff? Yeah, daycare and so on. Um one one instance and I still remember this when my son was very little, he was in um he was in nursery school a couple of days a week and there was a little girl in his group whose mother was working and commuting. She was working in New York City and from where we were living, she the mother had to have at least a three hour commute every day. And Ooh. That little girl was just not doing well. You could, and that early. I mean, you could tell that she was just loving to have a grown-up who really liked her and you know who, who wanted to be with her and that kind of thing, um, even on an, on on a casual basis. So um, I don't know what became of her. I hope she's doing well, but it's. You see it, and then you hear of other kids who are also in that situation. They're not doing very well at all. They have had problems in high school, problems as they grew up, and um, some of them actually are living in their mother's basements. Yeah, these are the people where you every time you go to the post office, you check the wall to see if you recognize them. <laughs> not, qu- not quite yet, but it might get to that, yeah. <laughs> so... So it, it so so what is what do you suggest, Stefan? I mean, well, it's the brutal truth. You know, I'm. This is sort of going back to my conversations uh, earlier in the show. It's it, it just the brutal truth. You know, um, I posted on um, Twitter this comment about uh, daycare and you know don't don't dump your kids in daycare and and you know this with a three hour commute. This just to me, this just plain abusive. You, you don't have a kid and then create this situation of the kid experiencing abandonment. You don't have a kid and then dump them in 
minimum wage strangerville to to be raised. You, that, that that's just wrong, fundamentally wrong. And and I get there's emergencies, and I I can understand, but you just you don't do it. You, and and it's not my opinion. These are facts, right? Uh, kids in daycare, twenty years or twenty uh, twenty years, like it's a sentence, right? But kids in daycare for twenty hours or more a week experience the same symptoms as kids who've been literally abandoned by their mothers. And we know that maternal abandonment is catastrophic for children's psyches. So it's just the brutal truth. You're harming your children. You are being a bad mother. You're barely even being a mother. You 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 yanking your kids out of bed when they're probably fast asleep. Uh, you're, you're hurrying them through breakfast. You're in a rush. You've got no time for conversation. You're stressing out as you drive there to get everywhere on time. You drop them off at daycare. You you see them that night. You pick them up. You bring them home. You've got to feed them. You've got to bathe them. They go to bed. You're barely, barely a parent. Parenting occurs in the unstructured time of day. Parenting occurs when little things pop up in your interactions. Parenting occurs when you have the relaxed time to be able to have meaningful conversations. And conversations between parents and children, they erupt like geysers here and there. Boom. I used to think, oh, I got to have more of these. It's like, well, they'll happen. They'll happen. Parenting between, like the, the, the conversations that matter, that you remember, that influence your children, happen as a result of just being around each other a lot. Of just being around each other a lot. And this is something, gosh, what was it? I think Dr. Phil's son wrote a book about teens or whatever, and he was basically, and I remember this, he was saying that um, you can't, you know, if you if your teenager is acting up, you can't just suddenly become their best friend, you, you know, and you, you have to have, just be around a lot and, and be engaged a lot, and then stuff will just come out. Yeah. Conversations will just happen. It's not going to happen when you're stressed driving back and forth to the daycare, when you're rushing them through dinner and then you've got to talk. You will never have time for those unstructured eruptions of intimacy and instruction that happen as a parent. It, it, it happens in an unstructured way and it happens simply out of proximity over time. And if you are a mother and you have a baby, you need to be with that baby. You need to be with that baby. You need to be that with that baby in the same way that you need to feed and change that baby. Oh yes. And yeah. when you when we when I bring this up, and I have brought this up long before this show, long before this show, I was having a, uh, I was having a dinner, and um, some friends of friends came by and. The woman said, oh, I just, I had a baby a couple of months ago. And I said, well, where? Where's the baby? Oh, it was lunch. I said, where's the baby? Where's the baby? She said, oh, baby's in daycare. Why? Oh, I've gone back to work. Oh. I said, why? <laughs> she said, because I need the money. I said, are you not married? Yeah, I'm married. Does your husband make money? Yeah, he makes money. Then why do you need the money? Long pause. Tension. Face becomes blotchy. <laughs> Tension. And I sa she said, well, we might have to move if we didn't have the money. I said, so? I said, did you, did you move when you went to college? Did you live cheap when you went to college? Yeah. So your education is more important to you than your baby. You're willing to reduce your standard of living for your education, but not for your baby. Tension. And you get this, this tension because we've got this selfish, selfish generation 
I just had a call with one <laughs> last night. Selfish generation. Well, I want to be able to keep doing what I want to do. No, you're a parent. It's not about you anymore. It was about you when you were a kid. Then it was about you when you were a teenager. Then it probably was quite a lot about you when you were in college. Maybe a little bit about you when you start in the real working world. But once you become a parent, guess what? It's not about you anymore, sunshine. It's about your baby. It's about your children. In my and people case, who can't make that transition, it's just terrible. I'm sorry, Fausto, you've been trying to say, let me I'm shut sorry. up and go ahead. I could do that all night, so go ahead. No, in my case, I, I decided I was going to stay, I was going to be a stay-home mom. And what happens is that once you come out of that closet, um, <laughs> a lot of women look down at you. You should be at work and you have an MBA and you should be doing this and that. And I'm like, this may be this is what I want to do and this is my decision and it makes sense to me and to my husband. I do find it kind of annoying when people get MBAs and then stay home. Now, I have a master's degree and I've stayed home, but of course I'm doing a lot of stuff and I'm sure you were too. But because, you know, I, that's an MBA that's taken out of the workforce and all that. So exactly. I assume that there's some negative in that. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just find that. I just find that. But that's the kind of thing. It's like, okay, you can look down on me all you want. Let's check in in 10 years. See, our, both of our kids are three, yours is in daycare, and mine stays with me all day. And we have a huge amount of fun and love each other to death. So let's come back in 10 years or so. Your kid's going through puberty and is really bonded to their peers and being dragged down into a pit of dysfunction by the lowest common denominator sociopaths in her current social circle, by which mm -hmm. I mean the school that you've jammed her into, which is populated with lunatics. And let's have a look at my child. So yeah, look down on me all you want. Let's check back in about 10 years and see how far your condescension got you. There was some of that, but also, I mean, at, at that point, I had decided that there were some people whose opinion I valued, and then there were people who, whose opinion I did not, and that fell in the not part. Right, right. No, I, I knew a professional woman. Uh, she, yeah, very, very interested in her career. Um, I think it was in daycare and institutions a lot and yeah come teenage years screaming at each other and oh my god it was horrible no end in sight and it's like well and she's like oh yeah it's really interfering with my work <laughs> oh, why do you even say to people like this oh man you dumped your kid in daycare and now you're complaining that the resulting trauma and dysfunction is interfering with your work. It's not about you. About you. It's hard to communicate. I don't know. This I don't know. Maybe you feel differently about this faster, but but sort of my I was sort of raised to believe that women were these big giant harbors of love and empathy and concern and caring and all that kind of stuff. I don't know about you, but in the younger generation, with some exceptions, ah, kind of having a little trouble seeing it well um i have met some really tough ladies that definitely were not concerned about love and caring but what i see now is that i what i'm seeing is a lot of troubled girls going on these demonstrations making fool of themselves and for what right right Right. I think I think people go a little crazy without kids. 
I think this is true of men and women. I think it's a little more true of women than it is of men. Oh, because men men yes. aren't men aren't designed to be quite as involved as parenting, right? We don't have the ovaries, we don't have the eggs, we don't have the boobs. Well, we don't have the useful boobs, we're all taps and no plumbing, but <laughs> um but I, I think I think people go a little crazy without kids, and I think women go a little crazy without kids. I, I do. I mean, this is why we're all here. Because you, you, you we'd have to be programmed to have kids because they're so expensive and time consuming <laughs> that if we didn't if some part of us wasn't fundamentally wired to have them, we wouldn't have them. And society has just created it such that for a woman becoming a single mom, or for a woman having a kid is a great benefit. For a man, having a kid is a great risk. The woman can take you to court and child support, even if the kid's not your own. After a certain amount of time, they can just get you for child support and alimony. And So yeah, we've just got the situation where women have become single moms Fathers are largely absent. I mean, the black community is like three quarters of black kids born out of wedlock. And the women can become become tough. Not not good tough, but like harsh. Hardly. Because I think I think that femininity flowers when it's helped and and protected by masculinity. I think that's when femininity gets its full flower. It's like femininity is like a tropical plant and masculinity is like the greenhouse. And these tropical plants flourish in a greenhouse and you take them out of the greenhouse and they get messed up. And I think that women like the security of being wed to the state and getting resources from the state and getting stuff from the government and having all that security. But I think it comes at a horrible, horrible, horrible price, which is their femininity and masculinity. So kids growing up these days... I think are not exposed to femininity much and they're not exposed to masculinity much because so many of the women are going it alone, which shreds and tears away at their femininity and the men are largely absent. So we're getting this weird, neither male nor female stuff that, that's coming up through the, the ranks in terms of just psychological imprinting or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, I think that the gender roles are going to reassert themselves one way or another. I mean, you can only push one side of a balloon in for so long, or you can only hold a balloon in underwater for so long, and eventually your arms get tired and <laughs> up it pops. So I think we just need to, we just need to tell people. We, we really need to tell people, look, we need to tell women, you need a father for your children. You need a father for your children. You need to stay home with your children. You need to breastfeed your children. You need to not dump your children in daycare. That is terrible for your children. That is being a terrible, terrible mother. And it's going to even if you don't care about the morals of it, it's going to bite you back in the ass hard when the kids get older. And we just need – all this stuff used to be known. It's been forgotten because we've all been drugged with government money. But we need to tell women this again. And we need to tell men this again. Men, don't just go for looks. Go for quality of personality. Women, mm. don't just go for looks. Go for quality of personality. For, forego – the offers of the state for free stuff. Nothing is more pricey or expensive or horrifying in the long run than free stuff. We are designed to seek out free stuff. We're not designed to live off it. It corrupts us and destroys us. Uh, do what's best for your children. Do what's best for your society. Do what's best for the future. Reject the fiat currency pushes of easy money. Embrace your love for your children. Embrace your love for your family. That is what we need to build on because it's going to run out either way. The money's going to run out either way, and you can have the money run out with your children loving you, or you can have your children not loving you when the money runs out. I would choose the former. Amen, Stefan. 
All right. Well, thanks very much for the call. I appreciate it. And um, I, uh, yeah, welcome to call back anytime. It's, it's a great, great question. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you. Up next, we have Chris. Chris wrote in and said, Common practices seem to suggest the answers to depression have come from within by quote-unquote letting go of what troubles you. I've long felt this means lying to and convincing yourself that what you're thinking isn't true when it very well could be. Am I wrong in finding commonly suggested remedies for depression philosophically dishonest? That's from Chris. Hmm. Well... How you doing, Chris? <laughs> so good, good. How me, about you? Let me exchange pleasantries with you before we we deep dive. Oh, pleasure to be pleasure to be talking with you. And uh, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Um, I want to give a special thank you to Fasta for for her call. I was afraid I was stuck on the "Tell Stefan He's Wrong About Everything" episode. <laughs> but uh, well, you can you can still tell me you're wrong about everything, and I, <laughs> no, I'm going to no, enjoy no, it no matter what I'm happens. Here. Right, right. Um, do you, have you experienced depression yourself? Um, yes. And it's, and it's a little bit, and it's among other things. I actually wasn't quite sure how to frame my question. And and Mike helped me out with that by pointing out some of the open-ended aspects of it, but it's, it's a little bit of depression. It's a little bit of, I don't know, I guess it's overall pessimism of life, like loneliness and, and just a lot of resentment, um, towards Towards a lot of people, I don't know. Well, let's start with the second part. Okay, we we end up with I think we end end up with general existential emotions because there's a consistency of behavior in those around us. It's hard to have generally, I think, negative existential emotions about reality. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it's raining again! The clouds are out to get me. Like it's it's really I it, I think. We have to perceive negative intent or negative behavior in those around us. And if it's consistent enough in those around us, I think it's easier then, and it becomes, I think, a strong defense mechanism to say, I'm not surrounded by assholes. Everyone's an asshole. You know, like I don't I don't sort of wake up every day and say, well, no one around me is nine feet tall, so I guess I'm just around a bunch of pygmies. You know? I mean, right, right. I don't, I don't have unrealistic. So whatever we allow into our life, particularly the more consistent it is, we have to end up normalizing it because if we don't normalize it, we change it. Right. So, so I call it, um, APD, uh, asshole proximity disorder. <laughs> like maybe, maybe, maybe there's something biochemically wrong. Maybe that maybe you're just surrounded by assholes and, and you haven't figured out what to do about that. Either make them less assholes find better friends or find better relationships or whatever. But whatever we allow around ourselves, if it's negative in particular, we're going to normalize it. Right. Or we're going to have to change it. Now, everyone who's around us would much rather we normalize their behavior than change it because assholes don't like to be rejected, right? So, So if we have people around us who are assholes, they would much rather we think that we have some sort of internal problem rather than the problem lies in our relationships. Because if, if we correctly identify that we're surrounded by assholes, if we are, we're going to change that. Now, assholes don't want to become non-assholes. Occasionally they do, but mostly they just want to keep being assholes. And, and they want you to stick around. And so they, I think there's a whole industry out there kind of generated by assholes, which is to make people who are depressed by having assholes around them think that it's some sort of internal problem or some sort of existential problem. Or No, maybe you're just surrounded by... Brown wrinkled eyes. I don't know. 
Not you in particular. This is my general. Oh no, opinion. no, I'm I'm taking this all in, and I definitely would say I agree with that. And and the reason I ended up framing my question that way was because I've been to to therapists of a few different kinds, um, multiple times, and it's never really lasted long. I I have a a general distrust of them uh, going into it. And I, the thing is, I know a lot of these these feelings I have are are not totally rational with everybody I meet. And I don't want to be thinking these things. And it's just like this little nagging voice in my head that is just always, I guess it's just overall. You are, you are one abstract guy. Let me tell you that. (laughs) Woo. Woo. Oh my goodness. We are bouncing through some nouns, aren't we? Okay. Concepts only. Nothing but a heartbeat. <laughs> well, would you like some some background? If I yeah, specific. Say? So, um, sure, sure. What was your childhood like, and uh, what were the people like you? Uh, who, what were the people like who were around you when you were growing up? Um, I, I can't say anything bad about my childhood. Um, I I listened to a lot of your parenting. <laughs> oh no. Well, no, we'll, we'll no, see. No. I guess we'll. See. No, come on. Come on, I, man. I listened to a lot. Of are you parenting. are you just are you just trying to make my head explode right now? I don't did know. you go to government schools? Uh, yes, I did go to public school in New York. In New York? Up, upstate New York. Right, right. Which is nothing like the city. But no, no, I, I get that. I get that. I get that. Now, you've been listening to the show for a while. Do you think that maybe if you'd not gone to a government school or had some other, maybe slightly better form of education, that your childhood might have been even more fantastic? Maybe. Sure, maybe. I, I really had nothing bad maybe. to say about my school. Oh, my God. Um, so there's no difference between a government institution and a free market institution. They're both completely equal in quality. I think, well, I think a lot of my, my feelings towards the people around me have come from my politics. And um, I, am, I am a conservative. And I'm, noting, I'm just noting that you're not answering the question. I just want to keep sorry, that reality, I'm, but let's keep going. Sorry, I might have missed it. What was that? You said maybe. Things would have been better if you weren't in a government school. So I was pointing out that there's no difference then or there may be no difference between forced coercive government institutions with government protected unions or some sort of free market child centric educational system. Uh, Actually, no, I'm 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 very much kind of against the the idea of public education. I think I just happened to go to a pretty decent one. (laughs) I think I got lucky with it. But. um, But the, the main thing is that I think I feel out of place in most of the places I'm around is I have always lived around um, kind of left, left-leaning left people. And I kind of always kept conservative values to myself most of my life because that's what you do when you live in New York if you're a conservative. When did that start for you? Oh, oh, geez. I mean, I've been following politics probably since the Monica Lewinsky scandal in 98 when I was like 10 years old. Um, my father's a big conservative, and I we I just always followed it. But I ended up all right. So me. hang on, hang okay, on. You got sorry. nothing bad to say about your childhood, except for the fact that you went to a government institution for your education, and you had to hide your politics from those around you. Other than that, no problems. Sure. <laughs> I don't. I, ne- go on. I never view. And now we're two I for two. I but go on. Those as problems. I always kind of thought of it as just the way it was. What? So, so, ah, oh, you see, normalizing. You see what I'm talking about? Sure. Normalizing. 
Well, that's just the way it is. Everyone has to hide who they really are and what they really care about and lie to those around them who will disagree with them or might react violently or negatively if you tell the truth. Everyone has to do that. It wasn't specific to me or my history or my circumstances or my environment or my school or my family or my friends or my extended family. That's human nature. That's the human experience. Everyone has to hide what they really care about and what they really value for fear of negative repercussions. That's just called breathing. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had that quick a confirmation of a hypothesis in this show. Well, except maybe with Fritz. But anyway. <laughs> well, it definitely makes sense. Um, yeah, you normalized it. Yeah. Why is it normal? Because it was always that way. And when I moved out of state, I lived in another, another blue state. Uh, I lived in Hawaii for the last four years, actually. And You cannot say that to a Canadian in February. You cannot oh, say that to a Canadian in February. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. I, I did it to get away from those those winters. I couldn't take it, but it's No, no, yes. Now tell me more about how terrible winter is. I went for a walk today, like the snow was so crunchy. Oh. I mean, because we had freezing rain recently. Oh. And like I'm I'm walking and I'm like a it it was in the woods and I'm I'm walking and it's like crunchy. I'm like you know, it's like this big white icy scab that you're walking through actually it was quite pretty in the woods though because the sun was reflecting off of the ice that had formed on top of the snow uh, and bouncing back up and it was really quite pretty but also really cold yeah <laughs> but anyway okay so you're, I'm, I'm back sorry oh no, I went to Gavet, no. Uh, and uh, it's, take, it's what white me people back. do so go ahead taking me back taking me back but um basically that's kind of probably why i normalized it is because i was always around it um I, I feel like I got my conservative type of values from, from my father and from my family. And there's some of the people. Well, but so you didn't have to hide it from everyone. No, no, no. My family is, is all very much, um, well, mostly my immediate family, my parents and my brother. There's four of us. We all are very in line um, with, with our values. And, and so did your parents hide them from friends and family? or um, No. Not really. So who the hell's hiding? You, you can do it at home. Your, your parents are hiding. Uh, not hiding. You're not hiding at home. Was it just at school? No, no, no. It wasn't, it wasn't even like a conscious thing. It, when it really got con to be a conscious hiding was when I went to college. And I went with a group of friends from high school. I'm a musician, and we all went as a band. Ah, musician. And that, musician, all and, right. You know, so you're in like, strumming well. lefty land. Yeah. It's it's just flooded with that, and nobody really knows why. And I don't even think I knew why I was I was right leaning at the time. I, why? <laughs> because you know what the old joke is: what do you call a drummer without a girlfriend? <sighs> I'm the drummer, so take it easy on me. Homeless. Oh. Why, why do artists love the state? Why are artists on the left? Because being an artist is very risky. <laughs> and people, people, if they're up on the trapeze and their hands are greased, they like there to be a safety net. So, of course, artists like the state because most artists don't make very much money. And so they really like – like I remember when I studied playwriting at the National Theatre School, uh, at one point I looked it up and it's like, oh, yeah, the average income for a Canadian playwright is about $2,000 a year. So unless you're living in a van down by the river on a steady diet of government cheese, you kind of need the government. So, um, yeah, you know, if uh, if you need the government, then you'll end up praising the government so you don't feel like a cheesy basement-dwelling pirate of other people's productivity. Right. 
Right. And I think my friends knew that me and my family, my family and I were were more conservative, but I kind of just never talked about it because I didn't feel like the confrontation. I, I didn't know much. I didn't know too much. But basically, over the last year and a half, I, I still kept in touch with a lot of those friends. A lot of them actually resented me leaving when I went to Hawaii. But these friends, um, when they found out I was a Donald Trump supporter and a pretty vocal one, I became very enthusiastic this election cycle. They totally, totally turned on me and disowned me. And it's a common story. A lot of people are saying this. And it's pretty much left me with feeling feeling like, is there anyone? I mean, I've found over the last year that there are people out there who, through through you, actually, I've just been listening to you for about a year. And... I found that there's a whole lot of other people that feel the same way, and I've never met these people. <laughs> why? Why do you think that your former friends turned on you so much? Oh, um, I well, because they're liberals, basically, but they're. No, that's that's they're, um, they're that's kinda, that's that's necessary, but not sufficient, right? Okay. Okay. Um, why did they turn on me? I really don't know because I always knew the way they felt, and I never held it against them. And right, because because you're from the right, you're conservative, and therefore you're tolerant. I, I try my best to be, which is a huge mistake. <laughs> Because to be tolerant of the intolerant is just cowardice, right? I mean, not calling you a coward because until you know, you're not responsible. I've thought of myself. But as if a if tolerance is a value, if tolerance is a value, then tolerating the intolerant is hypocrisy, right? Yeah. Why would you be tolerant of people? I mean, I made this case years ago, a Libertopia speech from 2010, I think it was. There's one from New Hampshire, 2008 or 2009. 2008. I think it's my first big public speech. And I made one at Libertobi in 2010, How to Achieve Freedom. How are liberals tolerant if you don't pay the taxes that they want for their social programs? They're completely happy with you being thrown in jail. Yeah. How is that tolerant? Yeah, people don't seem to, to think about what's at the end of every law, and that's enforcement. Oh, they know. They know, yeah. They know. They don't, they don't. Do you know, let me, let me ask you a quick question so you don't feel so alone in this, although I still don't want you to normalize it. <laughs> okay. Of Hillary Clinton's supporters, what percentage of them do you think ended relationships over the election? Oh, I just, Significant relationships. I just saw something about this. Um, I don't remember the number, but it was significant. 22%. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's not 22% like it's some objective fact. That's 22% who are willing to admit to a stranger that they ended relationships, significant relationships, because of the election. Mm -hmm. And these are, so 16% of Americans as a whole said they've stopped talking to a family member or a friend because of the election. That's up marginally from 15% on the previous cycle. It was higher, though, 22% among Hillary Clinton supporters. Family member or friend, not acquaintance, friend. Relationship completely and totally 
ended. Defood, defriended, because of the election. I guess she's running a cult. Yep. I even had one, I even had one friend um, in a Facebook debate I was in with a bunch of people because I, I, I love those. It's my guilty pleasure. It's awful. But um, she actually... All right, masochism. We'll get back to that. Let me just make a note here. Okay. <laughs> okay, go on. She actually um, made up a, a... She accused me of sexual assault on her. <gasps> from our, what? From our freshman year in college. When we, wait, wait, what? We had a Facebook met. debate escalated to an accusation of sexual assault? Yep. And she, 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 had even, she hadn't even been part of it before that. But there was a situation when we first met where I, I wasn't very good friends with her and I kind of thought we were on a date and I tried to kiss her and she didn't want to. And, and she, I guess, held on to that. But we were good friends for 10 years after that. And, Holy. <laughs> and she pulls this out and said I, said, I sexually assaulted her publicly. There's like 30 people commenting on this thread from college. She publicly accused you of sexual assault. After being your friend for 10 years after you tried to kiss her and she wasn't interested? Yes. Jesus, have you ever had a woman try to kiss you when you're not interested? Uh, no. I have. And the idea that I would escalate that in any public way to anything, oh my God. Oh my God, this friends for 10 years? Like friends, friends for 10 years? She went on vacation with my family. What? Yeah, we took her on vacation one year. She was like a close, close friend, very close. Bah! And it, it's just amazing what happened now. I, I probably shouldn't. This is probably destructive, but I always save the, the last text message she sent me, which was, you're a worthless stick in the mud, and I wish you were never born or something like that. And it's just crazy that I've, I've and a lot of people that I was very close with that were in my band's kind of click. We were actually a pretty popular band in our, in our small town. Feel that feel this way about me. Wow. That is thermonuclear. Holy crap. And it's only because I spoke like I just, I would just hold it in and, or I just said, say, ah, it's not worth it. Cause I wasn't that passionate about it. And now I've become passionate about it. And, and I, now you know why it could be useful to hide, right? Yeah. Holy crap. So, I'm so I feel sorry. like that's I feel like that's just been been holding me back from <sighs> from just just internally like I feel like I'm holding myself back cuz I can't let go of of all that stuff. Well, god, I mean and and I feel like a lot of people especially in therapy they say, "Oh, the answers come from within." And uh. And they and they say you, it's all about how you approach it. A lot of people say that it's all about how you approach it. And no, no, there's no good way to approach that kind of accusation. No, 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 no. I, I don't. This is not a. There's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. This is not a Hamlet thing, right? This is like a public accusation of a heinous crime. Yeah. Wow. When did she? I mean, if you were friends for ten years, did were there any indications that she? Was turning this way or? Um, well, we would always joke about it. We would always joke about it. I remember we were watching. What about joke about what? About our differences. It was always kind of friendly because it wasn't too in-depth. 
No, but but so she was lefty. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Right. Right. And this is what I'm saying when I talk about tolerance being not a virtue. Yeah. Tolerance is a virtue around, around people who are tolerant. You know, like, like English is a good language to speak around people who speak English. And I guess I it's thought... not a good language to speak around people who don't speak English. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I guess I thought... So you, you thought it was just like some abstract thing, right? This... this um, well, we have our political differences, but, 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 right? But now we're seeing, we're seeing the left unmasked, you know, and you've seen it in an unbelievably brutal way, which I have nothing but sympathy for, but now we're seeing the left unmasked. We're seeing all this tolerance, right? When, when speakers come to a college which the left doesn't agree with, when um, stuff happens that the left doesn't like, we, we see, we see the supposed tolerance. We see um, how they react to differences of opinion. We see their willingness to negotiate or lack thereof. And I've argued, but this is what the left has always been about. It's just been masked by our friendliness and our compliance. You know, you comply with the bully. You you pay your protection money, your store doesn't get burned down. That doesn't mean that you're in a peaceful situation. It just means that you're buying an unincinerated store one shakedown payment at a time. And so the whole time you're with this woman who, being on the left, wants you thrown in jail for following your conscience. They're dangerous people. And you know that now, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. You got to read um, Ann Coulter's Demonic. Uh, I actually, my, my father owns it. We have a hard copy in the house. Hmm. Okay, got it. So you I, I actually just finished my first Ayn Rand book. Ah. I read Anthem. Right. Um, I guess what, what I feel like, what, back to, like, I guess the main part of my question, because I'm not looking for a pity party or anything, this is just kind of what's happened is... No, 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 don't, don't, that, no. Okay. No. No, no, that's not the, the shocking nature of your experience is the furthest thing from pity party that I could conceive of. So I don't want to diminish what we've been talking about with that terminology. I don't think that comes from your heart. Okay. Well, I guess I'm, I'm, I, I, let me say for a minute that this whole, this whole movement, this whole Donald Trump movement, it kind of reawakened an energy in me. I was, I was, pretty, pretty depressed about a year and a half ago. And it was around that time that I started looking on YouTube, which I had never really spent much time on YouTube before that. And I started finding all these people and I found somebody recommended you. And then I found out about like Gavin McInnes, Milo. I always, I actually always followed InfoWars, but kind of more comically. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. Um, I started to make decisions to to turn my life around and do a lot better. I I've, I've lost 40 pounds in the last year and I was cuz I was getting I was getting fat. <laughs> and I've I've been making I I don't know, I've made a few decisions especially with voicing my opinions that I feel are good for me um moving forward. But I still feel like something's holding me back from from that past I had, and it's been a while now and everyone else has moved on. And I still, right. 
I still have nightmares about everybody. Now, when you say you have nightmares about everybody, what do you mean? Uh, I'd say, I mean, for the last four or five years, a couple times a month, I'm having nightmares about the people that that I know think poorly of me. <laughs> and when did this happen with this um, Facebook post and the woman? Uh, this was over the summer last year. In the heat of but for, the- so so for years before that, you were having this dream that people would think badly of you. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because it because it wasn't. She was one of the people that kind of stuck with me. I I mentioned that some of the people, especially my my band members and my close musician friends, resented me for leaving because I was the drummer, and they had to find a new drummer. Um, so a lot of people thought poorly of me before all of this as well, and. Well, did they think poorly of you as a person or did they just find you leaving inconvenient, which is not really the same thing, right? They conflated the two. You, 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 you abandoned us. You betrayed us. You're a, no, I just pretty much out of winter. Right? I had the van. Yeah, okay. I had most of the equipment. So you're not very good at figuring out who's trustworthy as yet, right? I, I don't really trust anyone. I don't trust myself. I don't. No, no. That, and not trusting yourself. Makes sense at the moment because you're 10 years friends with this woman who pulled some unbelievably ungodly, horrible stuff on you publicly, publicly, terrifying, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, your reputation, your, uh, fear, I mean, God, horrible, right? So this was your friend and, and, and your parents' Took her on vacation, so so they're not very good at judging people, right? They're they're they can be way too trusting, yeah. And well, it's tolerant. It's the pathological tolerance that is going to be the fucking death of Western civilization if we don't find a way to rein it in. Tolerance must be a reciprocal value, otherwise, it's um, cowardice. It's blurring. So you had this female friend who turned on you in the most astonishingly vicious manner you had bandmates who turned on you when you did something that was good for you but inconvenient for them they conflated it with you being a bad person right long time friends those bandmates once, yeah once since we were babies. and you you forge you think you forging bonds of steel on the road right mm-hmm and one since i since we were three years old we were friends and spent most of our time together that whole time wow Have you ever seen Goodfellas? Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. Okay. So you know the scene, Joe Pesci's character and um, Robert De Niro's character? They're in the diner. And Robert De Niro's, sorry, spoilers, is an old film. Robert De Niro has been ordered to kill Joe Pesci's character, right? Um, They didn't have De Niro do it. Is this Casino? I don't I don't even remember. I might be thinking of something else. I don't know if Robert De Niro does it, but Robert De Niro knows it's going to happen. Okay. And he's just he's just sitting there chatting. And I remember watching that movie thinking, but they've been friends for a long time. He's going to warn him. He's going to write something, right? Mm-hmm. 
but it doesn't matter. There's, they've been around each other. They've they've shared a lot of laughs. They've shared a lot of girls. They've shared a lot of drinks. They've gone, traveled together, slept in the same hotel rooms together. doesn't matter. It adds up to nothing. It adds proximity without shared values. Adds up to nothing but heartache in the long run. Because you're like, well, we grew up together. Well, she went on vacation with my family, friends for 10 years. We've known each other since we were three for these bandmates, right? But some people have no allegiance. The accumulation of history means nothing. They can detach from that like you cut a cord on a astronaut's air tube. Off he goes. And it's like the, the, it, it doesn't accumulate anything. Does that make sense? Sure. And, and you, I don't, you don't, you, you don't, you don't, you don't, you're not making deposits in some sort of bank of friendship that's going to help you weather any negativity, any storms, right? Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. Loyalty is K selected only. There is no loyalty in the R selected mindset. Wolves fight for each other, rabbits protect no one. You know, you, they, they, rabbits born together, growing up together. Rabbits having sex with each other. A hawk comes along, grabs the rabbit. The other ones don't even look up from their eating. The R selected left has no loyalty. You will not find that virtue in those people. 22% of them ended relationships. That's just those who are willing to admit it. Right. And we don't know those other people. It may have been that they had differences with other people, but those other people complied or the conversations ended or they didn't stand up for themselves or they backed down. They have no loyalty. So the left say, hang on, the left say, we care about gays. While allying themselves with some of the worst elements of Islam and, and assaulting people who've come to hear a gay man speak at Berkeley, right? And other places. I, I was held up by right. protesters at Milo's speech at UCLA last summer. I couldn't get in. Right. So the no loyalty. No loyalty. They say they're for women. For women. Look at uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed from the Rebel Media. She's, I think, in Ottawa. She's covering a protest. Uh, it's a women's march. And some guy comes up, punches her in the face. But because she's on the right, what happens? And some of the women, they spirit the man away, make sure there's no confrontation and hide him. And she gets no sympathy because she's a woman. But they only claim to like no loyalty, none. And it's a chilling, existentially horrifying moment when you stare into that abyss of the R-selected unbonding. Unbonding. I was thinking of Dr. Faith uh, Snyder, I think her name was, that we did uh, studies on um, attachment disorders and so on. Attachment disorders. There's no accumulation of reciprocal value that you can rely on. What, what, can you explain that? Accumulation of reciprocal value? Um, I'm trying to... Well, it's... it's. I don't know if you've ever had it where you've been kind and generous to a friend and they've helped... You've helped that friend. 
and then you ask that friend for help in return and it's like no sure that's that's kind of everything <laughs> no 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 that's the people you're surrounded with right right i'm saying that's that's been my experience for the most part right that's not that's not the whole world at all right that's your non-confrontational family in a sea of our selected people if i can put it that way Hmm. I you know this this gets this guy when I was young came to my house bought my apartment every every lunchtime came over he'd play if I had food which wasn't often we'd we'd share food or whatever but guy came over and we go dirt biking I don't have any gloves because we're broke right I don't have any gloves he's got these big thick oven mitts his big thick hockey gloves we're out there biking. My hands are like claws. I mentioned this before. My hands are like claws of biking on my dirt bike. It's freezing out. And I say to him, man, can I just put your gloves on for a few minutes? He's like, where are your gloves? Mm. Are selected. I got it. I got it. So you can come to my house every, I give you food. I don't have much. I share what I've got. I ask you for three minutes of your gloves so I can warm my hands up. No, right? There's no accumulation. You and I, we accumulate obligations, right? If somebody has lent me money repeatedly, when they ask me to borrow money, what am I going to say? Yes. Of course. Of course. Yes, gladly. Because of reciprocal obligation. Okay. Also known as civilization. Right. <laughs> right? Reciprocal obligation. This is one of the reasons why multiculturalism is a problem, is you don't get to build those same bonds of reciprocal obligation because of in-group preference. But here's the thing. There are people who give the appearance of having some sort of obligation to you. But they don't have any real obligation. And if you cross their interests, it's like... You're just a bug to be squished. You're just in their way. You, are, you become a non-entity to them. So is it, is it my fault for trusting them? Because I no, feel like... I, no, it's I, not, no, it's not. It's not your fault for trusting them since you didn't have the knowledge. If you get the knowledge, you start to become causal. And then you start to accumulate responsibility, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Which knowledge is that? The Because I didn't know they were going to stab me in the back, you know? Really? There was absolutely no indication of any disloyalty well, they may have had. They never did it to anyone else. They, they, they didn't have any issues with that. They had stable, secure, happy relationships. They had no indication whatsoever of a lack of uh, attachment potential. No, no. I... I, I, they, I Definitely felt that they were um, different than me, value-wise. I guess just nobody had stabbed me. <laughs> that is a really mealy-mouthed answer. Sorry, yeah, that was... I'm asking, problem. no, I'm not asking for your feelings or difference or whatever, right? What I'm asking for is, was there any empirical evidence of dysfunction in their relationships prior to their betrayal of you? I'm, I would have to. I would have to think a little more about that. 
You've known them since they were three. Your bandmates, some of them, what were their home lives like? You don't have to tell me in any particular detail, but were they good, positive, happy, healthy homes? Pretty, pretty similar to mine. Yeah. Uh, Pretty normal, uh, suburban American dream, middle class. Mm. Uh, Any problems with drug use? No. Any problems with promiscuity? Nah, not really. Any problems with uh, money management? No, <laughs> not that I can. Any think problems of. with mean, repetitive? It, Sorry, go ahead. It was kind of like it was kind of like you see in a in a high school football movie town. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, like when you were in the band with them. Oh, um, oh no, um, there wasn't there wasn't really any drug use in the band. Um, and no groupies, no promiscuity, nothing like that. Well, there were, there were, yeah, yeah, there were a few, not promiscuity, but there were some girl issues um, that got between us, for sure. Like, both guys liking the same woman? Um, yeah, yeah, basically all the, or two of the other guys liking the woman I liked, and, and they get them, and I. <laughs> right, well, you are the drummer. Yeah, seconds. Is your, um, you're still you're still a step up from the bass player. I understand that, but you're a long way from the lead singer. Hey, okay. I started out on bass. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're moving up. Sexual market value is cranking up, right? Yeah. Rhythm guitar, lead guitar, singer. Okay, got it. Um. So, so the only indication that you had of a lack of empathy was the fact that they were on the left. Yes, and those and those particular issues, um, which were in college before I knew them, there weren't many issues like that. But where they kind of moved in on somebody they knew I was pursuing, right? So, hoes over bros—that that's the phrase, right? Yeah, yeah, not not yeah, okay. Not, okay. Well, yeah, that's what it right. was. Now, the 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 big issue for me is that and look chris i completely understand this this is no way shape or form of criticism i'm just gonna lay it out straight for you as i see it it's just my opinion i think there's good reasons for it but i'll tell you what i think and this is in no way meant to be a criticism because you don't know what you don't know but um politics means a lot so oh well we just have political differences well um I don't think the difference between capitalism and communism is a political difference. For you and I, it's the difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. You know, h- how am I going to do in a communist takeover? I mean, I'll be like third person on the gallows, right? Yeah. It's life and death. Um, how, how am I going to do in a brutal theocracy? Not very well, I think, would be the answer. To that it's it's life and death how am i going to do if i if i want to defy a law that the leftists want or have enacted how am i going to do well i'm i'm going to go to jail and if i resist i'm going to get shot so politics is some serious fucking stuff it's life and death it's bullets flying through the air it's people being arrested it's people being in jail where they can be raped and killed it is serious serious stuff now political differences between free market people less important But political differences between left and right, between socialists and free market people, massive. 
Massive. Now, it's one thing to be a socialist 80 years ago, or 100 years ago, I guess. This is the year of the anniversary of the uh, Russian final Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks oh. defeated the Mensheviks, took over and started the mass slaughterhouse that led to the deaths of tens of millions of people. It's one thing to be, even in the 1920s, maybe the 1930s, one thing to be a communist. It's another thing to be on the left or to be a socialist or to be a central planning kind of person now. The evidence has accumulated. It's one thing to be a Nazi in 1929. It's another thing to be a Nazi in 1940. Right? I mean, these are just empirical evidence has accumulated. Leftism is somewhat defined by a complete lack of sympathy for the victims of leftism. That's this by definition. Because yeah. you can only be on the left now if you ignore the bodies the left has created. And I'm, I'm trying not to get into this bichromatic rainbow bullshit of just left and right. I understand the continuum and this. I know that there's more. I'm just going to use standard terms here, though, because ease of understanding. If you're into big government control, central planning, socialism, communism, wealth redistribution, all that kind of crap, you're a really fucking dangerous person. And you're either ignorant or you're unbelievably corrupt. And if you're ignorant, you shouldn't have opinions about things you don't know anything about. And if you do know anything about, about these things and still have these opinions, you're advocating evil, advocating massive expansions in the initiation of the use of force. Now, if you have any basic empathy for human beings, you will be so horrified by the pile of the bodies that central planning has left behind over the past hundred years, that it will at least put some breaks on your enthusiasm for this. Because there's nobody alive now who thinks that the Soviet Union was a paradise or that communist China was a paradise or that Eastern Europe under communism was a paradise or Cambodia or North Vietnam or the list goes on and on. Everybody knows they were psychotic mass murder fests of near infinite human disassembly. So anyone who can still be into central planning and socialism and government control and expansion of government power and so on, by definition, lack basic human empathy for the hundreds of millions of bodies produced by these god-awful human disassembly conveyor belts. You, you're missing something, missing something fundamental in your brain. If you, have, if you give any kind of credence to this kind of stuff in, um, in politics or, or economics, there's something seriously, seriously wrong with you. And this is true for the people who are like, yeah, the welfare state's doing No, the welfare state is a god-awful, horrifying mess. And that's a big sign. It's an indication that there's something fundamentally wrong with these people. Sure, I think there's something fun. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's what I've that's what I've come to learn in the last year and a half, and and hearing other people, hearing hearing you, I'd never heard of your channel before that, but then I see I see you've got eight or nine years of videos up here and people have been thinking this for a while and I've just never known it, but that's what got me more vocal. And that's when the real destructive uh, friendships happened. But this is, I mean, this is true for the Hillary supporters too. I mean, the, the list of, 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 of 
horrifying stuff that the Clintons have been involved in goes back decades. We have uh, Bill's sexual Bill's sexual predations, her actions as a Secretary of State, destabilizing, helping to overthrow and destroy an entire country called Libya, unleashing waves of migrants upon Europe. Um, Muammar Gaddafi, not a great guy. He still had a stable country, which is a hell of a lot better than what it turned into. The guy was dragged through the streets and murdered by being sodomized with a bayonet. And it wasn't our country. It was, the, it was his country. Oh. Yeah. And, and Syria and, and like oh, the god-awful things. And so anyone who was like, oh, I can overlook that, you're seriously broken inside. There's like a, a huge set of wiring that has not occurred in your brain if you can just overlook that. Because pantsuit, because mealy-mouthed, empty-headed feminist rhetoric bullshit. I mean, these are seriously disturbed vicious, nasty people. The whole fucking system is a massive slaughterhouse of human life and potential. And the only way that you can be pro any of this stuff is if you fundamentally don't recognize in a very foundational emotional way the basic existence of other human beings. If you live in this narcissistic, selfish, isolation, me, 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 satisfy my own needs, other people aren't really real unless I can manipulate them into serving my needs and purposes in the moment, this is the clue. This is the clue. The evidence is accumulated, even more so now, 10 years down the road than it was when I started this show. The evidence is accumulated to the point where if people have no doubt about the greatness of the left and the, and fuck, I mean, you've got people being beaten with sharpened axe handles and, and like pepper sprayed in the face and beaten with flagpoles. And people are like, well, we're concerned about Donald Trump. <laughs> Seriously, like, I shouldn't laugh because it's like horrifying. Empathy requires significant investment very early on in life. It's like 13 major brain systems that need to work together. It's complicated. It's challenging. I had a good head start. I had a wonderful, um, I should say nanny or a relative, but anyway, I mean, very close, very caring. Um, so I had a pretty good start that way, which was very fortunate for me. And I've tried to pay that fortune, fortunate side forward. But anybody who's still on the left to me, it just shows that there's like a, just an unbelievably major disconnect deep down in the brain as far as like, don't you care about the massive piles of bodies that the left and central planning and socialism and communism have produced? They say, oh, but on the right to this fascism. No. But the no, Crusades. The Crusades. My natives. <laughs> yeah, no, I. It was a millennium no, ago. No, but, but. Uh, ah, fascism was to some degree a response to the left and fascism is central planning. Fascism is government control of the economy. I had a whole video on this. Yep. Still, it's, it's still on the same. It's not your mafia team, but it ain't non-mafia, just a different mafia team. So it's still the same thing. Freedom, coercion. Freedom, coercion. Do you care about the effects of the violence that you advocate? No? Fuck you. Then fuck you. Get away from me. You bipedal massive cancer. That's all. I mean, and this is, goes back to this, oh, it should be nicer. It should be nicer. These people don't care 
They don't have the wiring or they don't have the conscience or they don't have the basic human empathy to care. Sure. And I think I've, I've pretty much given up on most of them. And, and now I want to find, I want to find more people in the physical realm that think like me. Um, cause I see it all, all online. No, no, no. See, here's where you, <laughs> that relativism, it keeps creeping back in, Chris. Okay. You don't want to find people who think like you. What's the real way to put it? Uh, what would be the real way to put it? That value the same things that I do? Nope. Nope. Okay. Just shave back your initial sentence by two words. I want you to said, I want people, I want to think, find people who think like think. me. You want people who think, yep. not who think like you. You yep. want people who think. If someone's thinking like you, they're not thinking. They're conforming. You want someone who thinks and you want to think yourself. Don't, don't, don't be in pursuit of people who think like you. Right, right. It will turn into manipulation and echo chamber and, right? Go for people who think. And keep the people who think close to you. They're your best protection. Because the people who think will see the people who lack empathy and, and attachment and, and compassion. And they'll warn you. So where are they? Um, it's, um, I, I guess, the, the, back to the honesty part of my question. If I'm, if I'm being honest or not by trying to force myself to move on from something I can't seem to forget. Because I, I know I want to leave that behind. No, but you, you'll be able to move on when you're safe. Right. Have you ever been in a place like you're asleep at night and you hear, you wake up and you, you thought you heard a sound? Maybe it was glass breaking. Maybe it was something falling over and you wake up and you're like, whoa, <laughs> sure. what the hell was that? Okay. Now, what do you do? Um, you don't go right back to sleep right away. What do you do? You don't go. Of course you don't go right back to sleep. You so what look do you around, do? You, you get up. You get your weapon if you got one, and oh. you go and you check out the house, right? Make sure no one's in. Mm-hmm. Now, when you've checked the house, top to bottom, back to front, what do you do? Ah, <sighs> It's just the wind. Something just fell over. There's no one here. And then what do you do? You go back to bed. Right. You can move on because you're safe. You can get back to sleep because you're safe. You can't move on. I think, because you're not safe, and you're not safe because you're a tribal animal who needs other tribal animals who can think to watch your back. You should not have to rely on yourself to view all the potential dangers in the social universe. You, you can't. You can't. We're social animals because it's easy to deceive ourselves. We get horny. We, we think some really good-looking woman must have virtue in those decaps or whatever. <laughs> I mean, we, we need people to watch our backs. Why are we able to sleep so long at night? Because people stayed up and guarded us, right? I mean, you did this in rotation. Why are we able to have such helpless babies? Because we all protected each other, each other's kids, and watched out for them, which is why we were able to grow such a big brain. You need a tribe. You need people who are going to be around you, who are going to keep you safe, who you trust, and keep you from falling into any pit of historical inattention that can lead you to significant danger. So you're not safe. You had a massive thumping sound on Facebook, 
and you don't have the house checked and you don't have security yet. In my opinion, you need people around you who are going to watch your back. You watch their back. You get that mutually assured tribal ring of, of safety. We all need it. We all need it. We can't do it alone. This, this, beware the, the lure of the atomized Randian hero. This is all a fantasy, and it didn't even work for Ayn Rand. So that, I would suggest, would be the issue, if I had to guess. Would be to, to surround myself with, with good people. Um, yeah. You know, good people go through this warring world like a Roman phalanx, you know, shields up, and right? We need to. There aren't enough of us yet. We're working on it, whacking people up. But you need yeah, your hearing, hearing, you need your you need your gang. Yeah, hearing you talk about um, basic civilization in the in past videos where you talk about the tribal and and the roles that everyone plays in helping each other, you know, survive. I, I, it's kind of been the one thing that kind of kept me from giving a group like MGTOW too much too much thought is that I do want that. I do want that tribe. I don't want to be alone. <laughs> um, you can't. You, I don't you, have can't have, you can't have a happy life in solitude, I don't think. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of faith in, in today's women, but I still, I'm not to the point of, of giving up on it. I just, it, all, this, all this stuff that, that I'm holding just on call to. in here call like if you meet a woman that did, <laughs> I'm a resource you know I mean I'm not perfect I can at least give some perspective that might be helpful of course but sure. um you know if you meet a woman just you call in yeah this is what I've noticed this is what I think this uh, you know we may not come to any kind of answer but I'm sure it'll be a helpful conversation yep and I just well yeah yeah and I feel like all this stuff that I'm carrying with me I I feel like it's so engraved in me that I won't ever be able to get rid of it, no matter how much I know it's it's bad for me. I feel like well, I mean, I you'll never be do that. You'll never be, be you'll never be the person this never happened to. Right. Right. This is what um, John John Gimeshi's lawyer said this about. This is not right, but John Gimeshi's lawyer said this. Hennen, I think her name was. Uh, she said, "I always tell my clients, you know, I I, I may win." The case, I hope I will, but you'll never be the person who was never charged. You'll never be the person who was never in this situation. You'll never be that person again. So, but that's, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that you can make something fantastic out of a terrible thing, but it also doesn't mean that your life is doomed. You are, you, you got a real scare and it had significant effects. And I don't think you'll ever look back and say, I'm really glad that happened, but you can get enough good stuff out of it that you can say, I got the very best out of a bad situation. And that's at least for me when I've been able to move on. Yeah. And it's just that, that elusive move on point. I feel like a lot of people seem to get, and, and this is one of my, this is the deadliest of my seven deadly sins is envy. I feel like I'm jealous of the people that seem to be able to get over stuff. And yes, but seem to be but, able to but, do it so. But easy. some of the reason why people get over stuff, Chris, is because they lack empathy. <laughs> they can move on because they lack empathy for their past, for the future self. Right? They that that can happen as well. Like moving on, so to speak, 
not, not always a sign of, of great depth and health, in my opinion. Okay. I've never, ever heard that. I mean, just, let's take an extreme example, right? Sure. You, you got a friend. His mother just died. And he walks away from the funeral like, whew, glad that's done. Hey, who wants to go bowling? Oh, look, he's over it. Oh, dear. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not always a sign of being able to move past things quickly or easily. Or Be careful what you envy. If you ever get it, you might regret it. Right. All right, man, I'm going to close things off. It's been oh. a long show, but I really, really appreciate the call. I appreciate everyone's calls. Thanks so much, Chris, and the other callers. Everybody Thank was fascinating much. tonight. I appreciate that. And don't forget to drop by freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out with the show. Massively, massively appreciated. Massively, massively necessary. Can't do it without you, my friends. Can't do it without you. Not only won't, can't. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. Follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Use the affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. But most importantly, most importantly, have yourself a great day. Talk to you soon.